Welcome back to the Bong Revisited podcast. You are listening to part two of episode 22, where we revisit and rank Quantum of Solace. After M orders Bond to report in, he ignores that order, instead to head over to Italy to see a familiar face. Join us as we take a look and eventually add Quantum of Solace to our rankings. Um, so yeah, Bond, uh, after that phone call, Bond tries to get flight to Bolivia, knowing all the stuff about Green and, and Bolivia. Uh, but as his card goes through the, the machine to pay, it doesn't work because M's just cancelled them all. So um, he has to go make other plans. But before he leaves, he does tell the, the assistant behind the desk that she's going to get a phone call. And when, when she does, tell him that he's going to Cairo instead, to sort of throw him off the trail a little bit. And she does. I, I expected her to actually be like, oh, he's going to Bolivia. But no, I think she actually does. So, Yeah, I guess they're trying to set up Bond being the womanizer again, which is important <laughs> for what's about to come. Yeah. It's just not an aspect that's really been there at all. So it's like, oh, let's just have Bond being charming and charming someone. So it makes a bit more sense when it happens. This This is, again, something else that just goes nowhere. Like the whole thing of sending them to Cairo, it doesn't matter because they find out where Bond is anyway, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's it kind of goes nowhere, but that's just what this film's about. So then we uh, cut to uh, Italy. Is there another thing on screen for this place? There must be, right? Yeah, Tal- Talamone, Talamone, somewhere yeah. like that. Some beautiful Italian coastline, once again, as if we've seen enough of those. Uh, but Bond's in a boat and he's heading towards a, a villa on, on the side of it. Right, yeah. I just want to quickly check. Did they play You Know My Name for a second in the yeah, music? Yeah, well, I swear I was hearing bits of that. I thought yes. I heard it as well. Yes, I think they did. Cool. Which makes sense. Which makes sense about what we're about to see. So, But I, I was a bit unsure at one moment. Because I was like, well, hang on, what's the theme for this song? What's the theme for this film? That's not the right one. No. <laughs> oh, it's the last one. Um, but yeah, he knocks on the door of this villa and the door opens. And it's Mathis. Mathis is back. Hey, that traitor. And, well, Bond shoots him and says, you die for what you've done. <laughs> no, no. Mathis says, uh, or says, have you come to apologize to Bond? And, um, they and he was like, no, of... <laughs> I know what you did. Bang, bang, bang. <laughs> you need to drop this Mathis thing. Like, you're turning into Bond. I'm, I'm worried for you, Tom. I can't trust you. <laughs> but no. Uh... <laughs> no it's fair enough uh but so yeah, the two... I, I, I was wrong everybody i think i did come to that realization last week it just took a while for that line to make sense but i was wrong mathis is a pretty cool dude honestly it's fine i'm wrong so often i it, don't don't worry about it don't worry about it mathis mathis forgives you i'm sure <laughs> thank you mathis <laughs> Uh, but yeah, the two go out to this like little courtyard area in front of the villa, and um, Bond says about uh, if Mathis's uh, suit's retiring. So we learn that Mathis is now retired from being the um, the contact uh, in the previous film. And as he says that, a woman comes out with a bottle of wine, and I think we presume that it's his wife or at least his girlfriend, anyway. And as she brings out the wine, Mathis says, "None for him," and. The reason for that, we actually learn, this is all in uh, Italian, these two speaking to each other now, Mathis and in, I'm just going to say his wife, I think it is. Um, but yeah, the reason for that, Mathis says, is that this man had him imprisoned and tortured. 
And she responds by saying, well, because you were innocent, they bought you this villa. So really, you owe him. So that's basically it. That's the end of that little storyline. Mathis was innocent, so they bought him this place to pay him off, basically. Hmm. Yeah, it's really nice to see Mathis back. Yeah. If if you want to tie that together, he was a likable character in the last one. I I know they had to get through this quite quick in terms of what happened with Mathis before, because it does seem a bit odd that he disappears. But, uh, you know, they get the important stuff out the way, and now it's Bond and Mathis hanging out, which is nice. More time for them to spend together. That's all good for me. So with that, Mathis, I think he says, go work on your town or something. Go, you know, get out of the way for a second as he talks to Bond. And Bond asks about needing some passports and some credit cards to continue well, getting to Bolivia. And that Mathis is the only one that he can trust. So everyone's having trust issues. This is, this is basically the, <laughs> the, the note of the film is who can you trust? So um, Mathis starts talking about Vespa, saying that he thinks she really loved him and she died for Bond. But obviously Bond doesn't really respond to that very much. He kind of brushes it aside as he as he does with most Vespa talk. And uh, then so Mathis asks, well, why did you really visit them? And that's where Bond reveals the photos that he took from the opera, some of the people that walked off and uh, shows them in front of Mathis. And as he does that, he pours himself a glass of wine. And I mention that only because of a shot later on. But uh, yeah, he helps himself to some wine and Mathis starts to identify the people in these photos. There's a couple of them related to the Tierra project, which I think you heard on the intercoms uh, about pipelines. And then the last one is that Guy Haynes character that we've heard of before now. And Bond then asks, what does Mathis know about Bolivia? And it just so happens that Mathis was stationed there for like seven years, I think he said, and that He's got a few contacts. He's got a few people that he can uh, he can talk to. So um, with that, Bond sort of smiles and and says, "Come with me to Mathis uh, as a as a bit of a partner in this mission." And Mathis almost laughs it off at first, and you sort of see him thinking about it. He looks over to his wife, and you don't see him say yes because the the, the scene ends before then. But the scene, the scene does end with Bond just necking that glass of wine. <laughs> I don't know why they added that for. It's such a strange choice. It's just him finishing off that giant glass of wine. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe for continuity with the next... Not continuity, but we know he's about to drink a lot in the next scene. Yeah, I guess so. We, yeah, as Bond's a drinker, everyone. Uh, with that, we cut to... They're just straight on into it. No more fluff, as we are saying. They're on the plane. They're on the plane to Bolivia. Uh, except it's very, very dark, very late at night. Most people are sleeping on this plane, uh, except for Bond, who's just sat there at the end with the uh, the bar and the bartender's there as well. And he's looking at a a photo of Vespa, the, the photo with her and her boyfriend and the love knot necklace next to it as well. Mathis wakes up, comes on over, to see Bond and he, he hides away the photo and continues having his drink to which Mathis asks him what, what, what are you drinking and Bond says I don't know although he clearly Perfect. does because the bar this is really awkward this moment the bartender who is who is there like right in the scene standing right there very very close it's just a, a, a plain bar it's not very big he starts listing out the ingredients of this cocktail to which Mathis very quickly recognises it's like Gordon's and Kina Lille, and it's the Vespa drink from Casino Royale. 
But he does something really strange where he's like, Kina Lille, which is not vermouth. I don't know why he said that. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, I just, it, this, this bartender character is very strange. Very, very, very bad acted. Sorry, sorry, fella. But then he says he's had six of them. So, yeah, Bond's been, Bond's been on the booze for quite a lot with this flight. And uh, to that, Mathis says, you know, are you okay? Do you need sleeping pills? I've got pills for all sorts of things. Pills that can make you grow taller. Pills that can make you forget. Um, which Bond says no. And so Mathis says he's going to try and get some sleep and goes back to bed. Oh, this is where, like, I think I hinted at it before about how they just pull the Vesper card whenever they want to. And this really feels like that. Like, I don't get any sense of Bond thinking about Vesper or having any sort of connection to Vesper at all throughout a lot of this film. And it just doesn't feel like a consistent thing in this film. Because it's like, if we want to look at another revenge thing, you've got License to Kill, and that's very... They explain it clearly. You get it. And Bond's mission is all about trying to avenge Felix, you know, and his wife. And you know who did it and is after it. It makes sense. This one, you've already done the heavy lifting in terms of, like, why Bond would want revenge on the person who set out Vesper. But they've just, like, really confused it with this other plot. And I think it's supposed to be implied that Bond is actually trying to avenge M almost being killed, not Vesper. So it's yeah. like what you would think would be a quite to the point revenge story, and it sometimes tries to treat it like that. That Bond is on the edge and he's trying to get over Vesper by avenging her, but it's like it just kind of jumps in and out of it, and it just makes it all feel quite weak. And I really couldn't get into this stuff at all. I don't know why they did it like this. They really needed the idea of Bond trying to get revenge and like grieving not properly grieving but you know obviously they're still weighing on his mind and then doing all this like almost subconsciously potentially for that but they just seem to pick and choose whenever they want to do that it doesn't feel consistent i don't get that theme of revenge at all with this storyline and it just jumps between like we gotta start green and quantum which is connecting to vesper in, in, but in such a convoluted way that it just at some point doesn't mean anything and what it ultimately means is that scenes like this, which, you know, the dialogue's not great. <laughs> Pinch us if you've heard that before. Um, but even said, this stuff just doesn't work because there's no real commitment to any of this. I totally agree. Uh, that's one of the things that really annoyed me about this film is <laughs> they had a whole film to set this all up. It's not as if they were rushed for that element, but then they just don't really do much with it. Like, they can't... You can't just rest on having sad shots of Bond looking at the photo. That doesn't mean anything. What am I getting from that? What is Bond thinking in that moment? Like, how is it affecting? As you say, we don't need we don't need Bond going crazy grieving or anything like that. But a little bit more, just to sort of, when we do get the resolution to this film, make it actually have an impact that he has got over this. Whereas, like, I can kind of buy Bond saying, "Oh, this is for M." Like in his way, he is mentally sort of, you know. De- com- uh, uh, compartmentalizing it so that oh it's about M really it's not about Vespa and that's what it's saying to other people that totally works I get that but then I think we don't see enough of the real bond there to then make it work it's just really frustrating but as I say they they had so much room to play with to get this right a whole film just to deal with the repercussions of what we've seen and the weight of everything that we've seen 
But it's so superficial, these shots, and you never really get Bond's true kind of mental state, I think, in these films. Just him looking angry a lot. Angry or sad. Yeah, which can work with Bond to a certain extent. But yeah, there's no smaller moments to tie this all together. And that's that's just a real shame. Um, there's just It's a massive shame. And this is just a weird scene anyway of Bond being a little bit tipsy on a plane. Like, I think this is just not a very good scene at all. It just feels weird. Bond at the back of a plane where everyone's asleep in first class. Because this is like first class, but you got everyone on the sides. And it's not like this is a huge plane. You've just got a bar there and Bond just drinking martinis. It's like, I don't... This is just kind of sad, but not in the way they wanted it to be. Like, I, I feel like maybe Bond and Mathis should have had this moment somewhere else that wasn't on a bloody virgin plane with some <laughs> barman it. there explaining how to make drinks. Like, oh, it's just, it doesn't feel right for this. That's it, isn't it? It's, it's the virgin bit. I, when I saw that, because it's on the back and I think it's on the guy's name tag as well, I was like, oh, yeah, Casino Royale, that's the virgin bit in there. Got to get that in there. Where's Richard Branson? Is he going to be behind? <laughs> maybe he's the bartender. <laughs> oh, maybe. Yeah, but um, no, I agree. I think it's a little bit... I I like more time between Mathis and Bond. I just think it's, yeah, the wrong setting for it. We needed somewhere a little bit more. Either somewhere... I don't know, actually. Yeah, I don't know either, to be fair. But, like, we did need this, a version of this scene between Mathis and Bond um, to build up their connection. But, yeah, not like this. Yeah. I was thinking, like, oh, we need, like... Some sort of, I mean, a bar would still work, but maybe like a casino bar. But then there is no casino in this film. So, no, I guess we were casinoed out after the last one. Anyway, uh, so they they end up reaching Bolivia on their flight. They're at the airport. Uh, they're at La Paz in Bolivia. Um, and as they come out, they are, you see a woman who is waiting very upright, very prim and proper. She's standing there waiting for Bond. It's this very young, redheaded lady. And she, uh, walks up to Bond and says that she's from the consulate and she's here to send Bond back to London. And she's all very posh and very young and you already kind of get the idea that she's, well, she's very out of place looking anyway here. And Bond just completely ignores her as well. So <laughs> Bond carries her walking outside the airport uh, and she is obviously walking after him and he asks, okay, well, when is the next flight to London then? Uh, if I've got to go back. And she says, it's tomorrow morning which I find a bit hard to believe. But anyway, tomorrow morning. So he says, we've got all night then. So they can get into a, a taxi together, uh, which she eventually sort of relents to, but says that if he attempts to flee, she will arrest him and take him back to the plane in chains. This, this tiny little lady, say, well, she's not tiny, but you know, this very, very cute little lady saying that. And it's like, mm, okay, then it's your thing. She's um, in such a bizarre jacket as well. She's in like an Inspector Gadget jacket as well. Like, yeah. It feels like they're trying to... Yeah, you're not supposed to take her seriously as hard as she she is trying. Um, but yeah, that was weird. It's, I don't know, they just put her in this odd jacket, like something from the 60s. Yeah, I've got to say, I don't, I didn't like this character from the bat. Like from the get-go, she just didn't work for me. I know that like she is not meant to work in this scene. She is meant to stand out, but well, I'll, I'll get, I guess I'll get into it later on why she annoys me. But anyway, um... <laughs> Because there's a big reason. But yeah, in the taxi, uh, they're driving to a hotel and there's a, the driver and the, the taxi driver is like yelling 
in Spanish uh, and it's all subtitled about what's going on. He starts to talk about the water shortage and Mathis says, oh, he blames the global warming for it. But Mathis is also on the phone uh, as all this is happening. It's all very loud because Mathis is on the phone talking to uh, a guy named Carlos, who is the head of the police uh, here in La Paz. He's sorting out obviously one of his contacts, so he's trying to sort out something there. Um, and just trying to talk to him on the phone. He keeps on telling this driver to shut up. We've all been there. We've all been there. Overly chatty taxi driver. You can't escape him, even in Bolivia. Um, but yeah, they end up driving to this very shabby-looking hotel. Definitely not uh, the usual sort you'd see in a Bond film. And Field, Fields goes in. I don't know if I actually said what her name was. It's Miss Fields. She introduces her name as. Um, she goes in to the front desk and begins to check in. Bond walks in, like has one look around and then just walks straight back out, back to the taxi because it's still parked outside, uh, which she spots and goes and follows him and he says he'd rather stay at a morgue, which, <laughs> which I think is a bit much. <laughs> but yeah, apparently they've got to stay there because they are the cover at the moment anyway before they send Bond back is that they're teachers on a sabbatical trip. So yeah, uh, but Bond's having none of that. He gets back in the taxi and instead they drive to... This very grand hotel. In fact, it is called the Grand Hotel, and it's this big, ornate, white-looking hotel. Um, Bond walks in, walks up to the front desk, starts talking Spanish, add that to the list of languages, and says that uh, they're still teachers on sabbatical, it's just they've won the lottery, which is why they're there, and they'd like a room. So from that, they're taken up to the room, and uh, Bond walks inside. Mathis is left outside. I guess he goes somewhere else, poor guy. But um, Bond walks in and immediately... Uh, walks into the bedroom and you get the shot of Fields just kind of standing there trying to look ahead but glancing over to Bond every now and then. It's as if she's trying to remain professional. Bond comes out and says, oh, I, I can't find the stationery in, in the room. Can you come help me look? And she laughs at it and, oh, oh Bond, and obviously she goes in. It's like the fastest Bond girl falls for James moment. I think there is like it's just ridiculous. It just doesn't really. I don't know. It's just such a a quick. Nothing even happens. It's just he says that and she's like oh and then goes in. <laughs> so yeah. Um, later on, it's a, sort of a fade. So some time has passed. Bond answers the door. He clearly just comes straight from the bedroom because he's he's shirtless. And Mathis is there who. Uh, says that after his contacts, he's managed to get him and Miss Field's invitations to a party, uh, a party hosted by none other than the Green Planet Company, the one that Green is, is head of. So, um, yeah, Mathis says that he'll meet them, meet them there later. He's going to go for a drink with the Colonel first. So Bond heads back to the bedroom, see him with uh, Fields. She's naked in bed and he's kissing her back. And she starts to say, oh, you have no idea how angry I am at myself for this, which you just don't buy at all. Um, and Bond eventually says, do you want to go to a party? Can't remember what this is then, like, oh, I've got nothing to wear or something like that, but they carry on kissing on the bed, and, and that's kind of the end of that. And that's Miss Fields, everyone. I don't like her. Yeah, I think the... <laughs> I, yeah, I don't really have a problem with the actress, I suppose. Um, I guess... So, like, the whole thing about all this is, you know, it's a parody, it's like a self-referential parody of older Bond films where Bond was able to sleep with someone very quickly. I think the problem is like, this is building to something 
for them to make a more point of it later. But I think a lot of this falls down because they almost like exaggerate how quick it is from the older films to what like what you say. The line is Bond just says, can you help me find the stationery? <laughs> She's like, nudge, sure. Nudge, wink, wink. <laughs> and it's like, I, I think that's deliberately insane to kind of draw attention to the older Bond films. But to me, I feel like the par- what should be happening here is that they do play it out like the older ones did and then maybe draw attention like to make you feel it later um you know just refocus afterwards but actually like taking that stuff and stripping it down to like this level means that i think all the impact that it's trying to have to point the finger at itself just gets lost because it's almost like they're trying to make a joke about it but the bond film shouldn't be making that joke if they want to make a point about it that's fine but actually do it like actually do it properly and then point the finger at itself so the fact that it doesn't do it properly and then later on they're trying to say like see see it's like well no because you didn't do it properly (laughs) you just kind of exaggerated all this stuff just to really highlighted it and make it seem absurd which it is absurd which means i don't buy it and it loses me a bit so I don't think it's a bad idea to have this stuff in here. This is another idea that just gets lost in the sea of ideas that is this film. Like now we're throwing in the whole thing about Bond's relationship with women and oh, why? Ah, he was just crying on a plane almost. It's like, ugh, it just doesn't. Maybe, maybe this could have worked, but yeah, to me, this just gets, they don't do it very well. And this just gets lost in the sea of all the other ideas, which is Quantum of Solace. Uh, yeah, I don't I don't think this worked at all. And I think it's such a strange choice for them to pull this in from the older films. I, I'm not saying that it's you, you can't take some things from the older films. I think actually in other elements, it's, this doesn't have enough. I mean, we've already had one film with no Q and no M and, and none of those sort of staples. And obviously they can't have it here because it is a direct sequel. So I guess that's why they do go with these sort of things instead. But I don't know, it just doesn't doesn't really fit in with the idea of this being a sort of revenge thriller film like very tough brutal film and then this just sticks out and i guess half of that is making it stick out but then also where this character goes doesn't have any impact for me later because she's just so like pathetic she's a pathetic character that immediately gets overpowered by bond and like you know outmaneuvered and and manipulated by him so it's just i don't have any sympathy it's just rubbish (laughs) it's just rubbish i think i don't i I don't think there was room to do this sort of thing in the film to be honest with you uh there's just too many focus on the revenge focus on just vespa don't you don't need to start getting bonds other traits in there for me hmm yeah i think ultimately that's correct but maybe i think they maybe could have done it It, like for me if they're going to to attempt it do it properly don't strip it down to try and make it seem silly like it it is silly (laughs) you don't even need to like change it at all you can take stuff from the older ones but yeah like this is going into the like bond leaves a trail of bodies in his wake which is almost like a separate thing to the revenge stuff because he was doing that in the last film so it yeah. does confuse things more. Like revenge bond is not the same as cold bond, and there's like two different elements that get addressed, and she's part of the cold aspect to it, 
which is probably why it might conflict with the revenge stuff. Uh, because if he was out for revenge, he wouldn't be seducing Miss Fields. Yeah, exactly. Oh, so party time. So we cut to a party, which is the, the green planet party event. And there's a lot of chill beats. It's not very big. It's like a lot of people there, but it's all very chill for a party. So Bond pulls up with Miss Fields and Bond is in a suit and Fields is in a very fancy dress. Um, as in a dress that is fancy. She's not like dressed as a clown or anything like that. It's not a Halloween situation. <laughs> Roger Moore's back. Roger Moore. Oh, no. <laughs> um, so Bond asks her for her real name and she's like, it's just Fields. And he's like, hmm. And again, that's more just like poking, trying to poke fun at this because her actual name is Strawberry Fields which is supposed to be a jab at the older Bond films having these ridiculous names. But it's almost like they put in this awkward dialogue where they're almost like trying to be like, we're not saying the full name because it's dumb. Like that's, I, I think that's what they're going for. When do they say her full name? I think Bond says it when um she was, when after the fact, when talking to oh, M. Oh, to M. Yeah, yeah, okay, right. But at this point, they they just kind of make a point not to say it. Which just makes this whole thing just seem so like, ah, oh, just so full of itself. It's so proud of itself that we came up with this silly name, but we're not saying the silly name. Mm, yeah. Because she already said I'm Miss Fields. So it's just, ah, oh, it's all just a bit awkward. So we cut to Green giving a speech to everyone at the party and he's talking about environment and about permanent damage being done to the environment. And I think he says Tierra Project during all this. I wasn't really paying attention to Green. Because remember, Green, everyone, it feels like it's been ages, but you know, Green's in the film again. Um, but yeah, so we see this speech going on and Bond sees Mathis talking to the colonel. Um, so this is like a colonel in Bolivia that Mathis knows who he's talking to. And yeah, so what is that? So Green wraps up his speech, everyone claps, he's shaking hands with people. And Mathis introduced the colonel to Bond and Fields. And the colonel says, because I think he's meant to be the head of police, and he's like, ah, oh, the entire police force is at your disposable, Bond. And he's like, hmm, that might be useful. Um, but we cut back to Green and he's talking to people and they're saying how people are struggling to get water. In Bolivia, people can't get water. There's a drought. And Green says, well, I blame the government. They're cutting down trees and ruining ecosystems and now they're surprised that something has gone wrong with the water supply. So the man writes up a check and goes to give him some money because this is like a charity event for the environment. And at this point, Camille shows up. Oh, her. Camille's back. Right. Yeah. And who? <laughs> I, I don't know. Man. I'm looking at my notes. I got nothing. <laughs> uh, so Camille shows up out of absolute nowhere and is a bit drunk. And she talks about, oh, wasn't it you, Green Planet, that sold that land to a logging company to cut down the trees and he's all like no she's drunk don't worry about it so green and camille walk away and we <laughs> we then cut to a two second shot of felix looking all grumpy on a sofa <laughs> <laughs> he yeah he's grumpy everywhere he's so grumpy <laughs> I get having scenes where he doesn't look happy, but the fact that he looks unhappy everywhere, it's just, oh, it's so obscene. It's perfect. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, look, he's in, a, he's in a tricky situation with the plan that he's part of in the CIA. But like the guy says, lighten up. <laughs> well, yeah, like, come on, I dude. Don't, 
I don't think he was cramping his style, though. I think, I'm sorry, if I look at the two of them, one is definitely more stylish than the other. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, yeah, Felix is all moody, um, but we go back and Green is talking to Camille and asks, why are you here? Uh, like, are you going after the general still? I don't know, m- not much is said here, but they they kind of walk along and they walk up to the top of this, like, balcony and this, like, stone balcony. And Green kind of pushes her up against that balcony, I think talks about how, oh, I could just throw you over this wall and nobody would think anything went wrong because you're drunk and they would just think you fed off. So they kiss and then Green like pushes her back, which causes the wall to break a little bit. Um, so she almost goes, but doesn't. And then Bond shows up being like, oh, there you are. And he says, Mr. Bond, what a pleasure. And then Green again refers to them like Green and um, Camille sleeping with each other saying, oh, you got to be careful with this one. She'll only go to bed with you if there's something you want. And then it's like how she looks good on her back. And Camille's like, oh, well, the feeling isn't mutual there about looking good on your back. And Bond says to Green, we got to go. Like tells Green we need to leave, I think. Um, But Green then starts saying about, oh, I know who you are. MI6. MI6 all says how you're difficult to control and everything around you seem to wither and die. And they just walk away. (laughs) Yeah, they just let him leave. And Green's just shouting at them like, you're both damaged goods. (laughs) What? Huh? (laughs) (laughs) I said. You're damaged goods. Um, but they, they're walking down these stairs and Green at the top shouting his lame lines and a man kind of follows them. I think one of Green's bodyguards and at the same time, Fields is happens to be there, I guess, going after Bond. But she continues going up the stairs and just trips the guy and is all like, oopsie. So, <laughs> all right. Um, but being I think, then... I, by the way, I think that was, I think that was uh, Elvis. Oh, that can't have been Elvis, could it? Because I think that's why he has the neck brace later on. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got Fields stripping up Elvis. That's, um, yeah. It's a good good stuff. Um. So, yeah. So this wraps up with Beam asking Felix to lighten up because Beam is there as well. The Americans are at this party and says, Felix, lighten up. Come on. Um. But Bond goes out to the front, I think. Camille gets in a car. Bond, no, Bond gets into his car, I think, and then Camille gets in that car, and Bond says, you're going to tell me all about the Tierra project, and drives away. So, oh, where to start? Where to start? So, so Green and Camille, again, I just find this all quite unsettling and not very interesting. There's just so many references to them, like, sleeping with each other and using each other for information, but this doesn't feel like too kind of i don't know adults bouncing off each other and playing games but like an interesting sexy game this just feels like all a bit sad and pathetic and (laughs) i think green is supposed to be sad and pathetic to a certain extent but they almost did their job too well it's just like camille is sleeping with green to try and get revenge on the general which is creepy and green is kind of aware of it but even then they still like kiss so they're still kind of I don't know if this is trying to meant to be like a Mr. and Mrs. Smith situation. That's like the best scenario, the best comparison I can come up with, where it's like two stylish people who are just using each other, but they both know it. But it all just comes across as quite sad. And for a Bond film, I don't want to feel sad. 
well, maybe a little sad, but not in this way. Hmm. I didn't really put any thought together with these two. I think it's probably because of what you're saying, where it's just I'd everything they say to each other. I just didn't. I didn't get anything out of. Yeah, because you're right. If if they had a bit more chemistry together, I could probably buy that they were like, you know, she, he knows why she's doing it, but he doesn't care sort of thing. And, and she's doing it to, because she has to, but then also sort of playing off of that a bit. But instead, it just seems like well, where he looks a lot older than she does as well, it just comes off a little bit gross. And like you say, maybe that's the point because, you know, he is a bad guy after all. But I, I, it doesn't really, it still doesn't really work for me. No, like I think her story is, you know, it's meant to be tragic for Al, but the way that Green is like sleeping with her and, oh, yeah, it, it's all a bit gross in a way that doesn't build on these characters. It kind of pushes them down a bit. Mm. So speaking of bad characters, though, uh, Green himself talking to Bond. These are usually some of the best parts of a Bond film, a villain and Bond talking, but this is so quick, so uninteresting. Green is so out of his depth. Bond is so not interested in this that this just also comes across as just too sad and pathetic to be interested. Well, he he's just saying buzzwords as well, like yeah. oh, damaged goods, wither and die, and it's it's just the film is really wants to hammer home. Oh, Bond is in such a bad state, and, and so is Camille to an extent because he's saying you're both damaged goods. But yeah, I, I, it's not particularly smart dialogue, um, which I think adds to it because it's just well yeah and also because as you say bond is literally just walking away (laughs) it's not as if this is this big imposing sinister speech that he's giving out it's just this little weedy few lines is saying as he goes off screen so i don't yeah they don't really have that much screen time together no this This might be the only conversation they have until the finale that's sad yeah yeah because i think the, the way this is written like Green saying all this stuff, it's like if Bond and Green had some sort of like connection in any way or relationship throughout the film, like other villains do with Bond, then I would probably kind of get him saying this stuff and maybe it would have landed. But they just don't know each other. Just Green has just looked him up and be like, oh, you're difficult to control. You're damaged goods, mate. (laughs) It's just so, there's just no weight behind the words because there's zero connection between these characters. Yeah. Which then makes it even more confusing because Bond is supposed to be like trying to avenge M's attempt to be killed, but also Vespers, but also trying to stop Green. So like, oh God, (laughs) what is this storyline? You tell me. No. (laughs) No. (laughs) No. (laughs) No. So yeah, just kind of sad. I don't think Green was really given a chance. I think the actor's not great with this character. But you can kind of see what he was going for, this slimy guy. Slimy, yeah. Slime is like, a great word. Yeah, like who's like has one image on the outside, but a kind of slimy, horrible one, and it's all involved and powerful and stuff. But none of it kind of quite works. And this is the scene that really hammers that home, that when he goes up against Bond and they actually talk, it's just all quite pathetic. Yeah, just a bit awkward. So Bond is driving off with uh, Camille in the car. They're just driving down the street normally and police bikes chase them and just they go the siren and they pull over and Bond is saying, well, Green probably just has some friends in the police. Um, So Bond gets out the car. The police ask for his papers. He shows them and he's like, 
can I, can you open the trunk? And then Bond very loudly says, why would you want me to do that? <laughs> Not to the policeman, <laughs> to himself. So it's another mm. case of them just like awkwardly adding, like dubbing in this dialogue just so you kind of know what's happening. It's not done very well, though. Um, and he opens the boot and Mathis is dead. No, he's not dead, is he? Mathis is just he's in the trunk. Beaten. Yeah, yeah, he's just up. been beaten, just knocked down in the trunk. I assumed he was dead, uh, but we find out he's not. Um, so the police point a gun at Bond and then Bond like picks up Mathis and like holds him in front of him and then uses him as a human shield so the police shoot Mathis and Mathis like reacts to the bullets like oh so I initially wasn't sure if he was dead or not but he gets shot because Bond uses him as a human shield so Bond, yeah. Bond uses that opportunity to like punch down the police and shoot the police I think as well and he then goes back to Mathis and like the Camille was saying there's a hospital on the other side of town but like there's obviously no time so Mathis asks Bond to stay with him and he kind of pulls Mathis up from the ground and holds him and he says oh that's better and Bond says well Mathis was your cover name wasn't it and he says yes and he says it's not a very good one as a joke and Mathis says well well we should both forgive each other um and he says I never sh- should have left you alone I think I think Bond says that to him um yeah. and Mathis says or oh, Vesper gave you it talks about Vesper Vesper gave you gave everything for you so you need to forgive her and you need to forgive yourself and Mathis dies in Bond's arms so we cut to Bond just putting Mathis in a skip and Kamel says is that how you treat your friends and Bond says well he wouldn't care and the final aerial shot of Mathis in this bins looking down and his corpse is left in there as Bond walks away so uh do you want to start with this one yeah, I mean, it's obviously a, meant to be a very emotional moment. This is Mathis. We've seen him in the first in, in Casino Royale. He's come back here. He has a, a, a good friendship with Bond by this point. Um, and I, I would admit, I, I think actually I, I do quite like this scene, mainly just because it is tugging at some very easy heartstrings, you know, like it's just he is a very likable character. He's very charming, as we said before, and he's kind of the same in this film. We haven't seen him as much, but he's still been good. And then to see him die is obviously sad. And like when he's uh, he's saying, stay with me. So easy lines to make you feel like, oh. But I think the thing I liked most about this is, well, maybe it's not most, but one thing I did like is that when he's saying about, when Bond asks, is Mathis your cover name? Which I don't really think actually means that much in in the scope of this film. But yeah, and Mathis says yes. And Bond does that little joke. It's just nice to see Bond like joke and and have a ever so slight laugh because it in this film so far and for the rest of it really like he is very very cold-faced and very um but yeah just no sort of humor or anything like that it's not like a roger moore eyebrow raise at any point obviously so just to have this little moment where you can tell that just by having that come out of bond in this moment is is the connection that the two had i think that works um where he's he's obviously just cradling him in his arms as he dies and i also really like what they do as well where they he just dumps his body off and then it goes like you have that that glimpse into bond letting down his guard ever so slightly maybe and then putting it straight back up again dumping his body in and and 
stealing the money from his from his wallet. This is what I think the film needed a bit more of to kind of actually convey Bond's state because you actually do get to see two different parts of it here. Uh, it just took a very you know, important character dying to to get to that point. But no, I, I, th- I think this scene worked overall. Mm, yeah, I was surprised how much this did work. Uh, I, I think, yeah, Mathis just being a likable character and the act of being in the last film as well and now being in this one, having that connection really helps and Bond having the last moments with him also helps. I think the main problem is what we've already said with the storylines of this film. Like a lot of the venom of this is taken away because is this about Vesper revenge? Is this about Bond being caught? Like there's just too many strings here at the same time. But I think a lot of it, it's, it does work better than you would expect. I think the main thing that I don't really like, I think that final area shot of Mathis in the bin is such a great idea, but it just makes me upset because it's like, oh, in a better film that had a stronger sense of this like trail of bodies, which is clearly like a recurring thing in this film. If it was something that all came together and tied together in a way that made sense with the rest of the film, I would have really, really liked it because that shot is pretty powerful, especially because it is a character from the last film just being left in the bin because he's now dead because he got shot. But it doesn't quite work that way. And I'm assuming that Bond, like using Mathis as a human shield was also Bond not caring. Well... I, when I watch this, the, I, it still doesn't really make any sense to me, but the impression I got was he picks up, he picks up um, Mathis from the, the boot and the, the police go, the police say he's still moving. So the idea that they thought that was a corpse, but because it's not, they're in more danger to then, be, to, to force them to shoot him. And it just so happens that he was in front of Bond. I don't know. Um, but why would like Bond what, pick him up? Well, yeah, exactly. Why did Bond pick him up in the first place and cover himself with him? I don't know. Yeah, maybe that is what they're going for, but I... Like, that feels really off. Like, I don't know what they were going for with that, but the idea that Bond would even do that to Mathis, I think the the themes of him being a cold killer are not strong enough and don't work enough for me to buy that in that moment. Um, But it could have worked. It totally could have worked, that Bond didn't really care about Mathis and it ties in to the end of it like so all the ideas are there all the kind of threads and ideas are there just they don't really come together sadly yeah um but yeah again I think I was because I don't think a lot of those themes and ideas are working and tying together too well with the plot and the characters I was actually surprised about how effective this scene was in terms of making you care about this moment between Bond and Mathis that was kind of surprising how well that worked yeah I, I, like, like I say, I don't think it's particular. I'm not saying this is an amazing scene because I think they had a lot of easy cards to play. It is just inherently going to be a sad thing. It's going to have a lot of impact because we've seen this character a lot and they play sad music and it's in this dirty setting and it's just someone dying. So it's obviously going to tick some boxes on that regard. But I do think they could have messed it up <laughs> somehow knowing this film and they didn't. So yeah, fair play. Yeah. So after Mathis being binned, <laughs> oh oh yeah that didn't feel great um we fade to bond driving down a road in like the middle of a desert so it's this big long road in this desert and uh camille is asleep in the front and we see tano on a video chat to m telling m that the foreign secretary wants to see you and m that's kind of about it i think tano reports that mathis has been shot and killed in bolivia and that the police are claiming it's bond so Mm. m now knows that 
Apparently Bond has killed Mathis and I think policemen as well in Bond. So Bond arrives at a small airfield and there's a there's a plane, just the one plane, and a man working in this like shed nearby. And Bond goes out to him. He says, can I help you? And we then just cut to Bond flying the plane. So he's just in the front of the plane on the runway going forward. And Camille asks, like, oh, what, what did you exchange and for the plane? And Bond says, the man wanted you, but instead I left the car as collateral um, for you. So we also see that the man is on the phone very quickly. He's calling someone, but we don't know who. Um, so we cut to them up in the air, flying through the air. And Camille is pointing to the map because they're going to investigate the land that Green is trying to get. So they're just going in a plane to check that out. I can't remember if that was said before this point, but that's what they're doing. So Bond says, oh, you were Bolivian Secret Service or you're either Bolivian Secret Service or you used to be. And talks about how you infiltrated Green's organization by sleeping with him and... She kind of bounces back and saying like, well, why are you after Green? And she and Bond says he tried to kill a friend of mine. She says a woman. Bond says, yes, but it's not what you think. And she says, your mother then? And he says, well, she likes to think so. Which is when like, this is the only time where in it clicked that M is who Bond is trying to like avenge. <laughs> like, yeah. There was one small line about ages ago that M was almost killed during the whole Mitchell fiasco. I can't remember how. It was like someone passed you on the stairs and almost killed you, but they didn't quite. So now, but this is when it gets confirmed. I'm not too sure if before this point they ever say that Bond is trying to avenge him. Um, I'm trying to think now. Like maybe they did, but if they did, it would have been a tiny line, like a throwaway line. Well, yeah, at one point Bond says, I need to find the, the men who tried to kill you to her. Right. But... But I still, I still don't really think that's like that's not the main point of it. It's still, it is for personal reasons, but he's just using that as the excuse. Yeah, so bizarre, really, really bizarre. I just don't think that works. But but anyway, um, so they see a load of sinkholes. They look down and see these massive sinkholes as part of the desert. Um, and she starts saying something. I listened to her about three times. I have no idea what she was going to say because she was all saying like. Oh, for the record, you know, just for the record, I, and then something, and then they get interrupted by them being shot at. But I have no idea what she was about to say. No, that's one of the things I rewound about three times. Still couldn't pick it out. Still didn't understand <laughs> no what idea. she was trying to say. Like, I don't think this comes back. I'm, I'm sure it connects to something that comes back, but there's no, like, real reveal about this character. There's no twist. She is just looking for revenge. So... Well, on that note, just since you've just said it there, how do you feel about her actually being a, like a Secret Service person? I, yeah, I mean, I guess maybe that makes sense, but it never comes up again. So for me, it's not something I really think about. So I guess in a way, because uh, it doesn't matter. I guess that's true. I kind of don't like that, but then it doesn't... I guess it's there to be like, oh, well, you know, maybe that's how she got into that position in the first place and she's very good at what she does. But I kind of also would have liked if it was just she was a just a woman who could do this but everyone's got to be part of something i guess yeah no yeah that's fair i think x secret service maybe makes sense um that's true that does make it a little bit better yeah that would tie into what they're trying to do here which is her revenge story reflecting bond's re revenge story because of where this goes 
Yeah. Um, it doesn't work very well, but I think that's what they're trying to do. So, so yeah, so a plane starts shooting them. She was going to say something. Neither of us know what, but a plane starts shooting them. We're assuming the plane got called in by the man when he was on the phone. So they say they shot the target and they kind of radio that in. But then they're told, you need to go and confirm the kill. So Bond's plane is like going down, but he like pops out the wheels and then like lands roughly, of which he's like, damn it. Ah. Yeah, really, really awkward. Damn it. Yeah, it's another awkward dub over, which is like, oh, I didn't, oh, I landed awkwardly. Uh, But this is only temporary. They like then bounce straight back into the air. So it's really weird. They like bounce on top of this valley almost and then go back up again. So that was pointless. Um, but they're like flying through all these valleys. So they're now kind of part of the sinkholes almost. And Camille like gets to the back of the plane. I think trying to look for where the other plane is that's chasing them. And she's all like, I think we lost him. And then we just see that the other one's there. And then she just starts shouting, he's coming for us. This is something she did in the boat scene as well. I think they're really trying hard to make her seem useful on these scenes where mm. Bond is being chased. And all of it is is just dialogue being like, watch out, James. Here he comes. So oh, very awkward. Um, so the plane, the one that's, there's like a black jet. And then the one that Bond is in is like this very old kind of big plane. Um, so the black jet is like behind them and, is shooting and we see a load of bullet holes go through Bond's plane so they are landing um, and then the plane does like a loop-de-loop and like comes back from behind it's, oh, it's all very strange so like Bond like temporarily uses the smoke so they've been able to shoot one of Bond's engines and that's like getting a load of black smoke so that blocks the black plane's view for a bit and he kind of goes behind and then I have no idea what's happening here. I think what's supposed to be happening is that Bond is going really, really quick. And then the guy's going really, really quick. And it's like a game of chicken. But then at one point, like Bond turns and the bla- the guy in the black plane like use- loses his nerve and like turns and just crashes. But I-, I think the only thing that causes that is that they're just both going really fast. I think, no, I think you're spot on because they keep having these shots of the... the- speedometer it's, yeah and and bond just kind of leans into the the black plane to force it to go like close to the the mountainside as well so i don't know it's it's kind of one of those very quick edited scenes that we've mentioned before so it's kind of hard to keep up but i think that's pretty much it okay all right yeah so that that's terrible then <laughs> it's, yeah <laughs> as you say it's like the same as the other ones where like the end moment of all these action scenes always falls short because you just don't know what happens Yep. So you're not like, oh, that was cool. You're just like, what? So it's the same with the boat one. Same with the, like, It's the same with all of these. So it's the same thing happens here. This isn't edited quite so crazily as the other scenes. Like it does calm down a little bit, but they can't help themselves like <laughs> with some of this editing. I do wonder if they had maybe just too many action scenes in this film. There's a lot of chases in this film. Like we've already had, as I was saying, he had boat, car, but... Now there's plane. I'd, I mean, I, I don't hate this. I don't hate it because I think it's, it's well, no, actually, I do kind of hate it. That's a, that's a lie. But I just think maybe they just tried to have too many scenes in here, too many action scenes. Maybe. Um, but it almost feels like they probably have a formula for this sort of thing. And I would guess the Bond formula might dictate you need another little chase scene here or something. I another would be surprised. one. Yeah. So they're now 
crashing or something, I think. Like, so Bond shouts to, like, tell Camille to put her parachute on, which she does, and open the plane door. And Bond, like, comes up and almost crashes into a helicopter that's there who was chasing, who was, like, around but not chasing them. So they, like, Bond just keeps going upwards. I don't know why. Um, Just goes completely upwards. All the cargo, like, fall to the back of the plane. And then Bond just, like, lets himself fall and is like, come on! So Bond just falls out the bottom of the plane along with Camille. They both, like, fall. And Bond... (laughs) Is this the bad dubbing you were talking about before? Oh, no, this is coming later. Oh, wow, because this was bad. So you just, they're falling, and it's quite intense, and you just hear Bond go, come here! (laughs) Come here, love. (laughs) Come here! Um, And they, like, grab each other. Um, I'm not sure if you actually see what happens fully, but, yeah, they grab each other, and I think eventually, like, the parachute goes at the last minute. But we get some terrible, I want to say CGI, because they're trying Mm. to make this really intense like they're really trying to make you feel about these like two characters falling and the air in their face so you get really intense audio but you get some weirdly weird like skin flapping on their face which is probably realistic but also the camera's like spinning as well quite a lot they really want to make you feel this and it's just it looks really silly and i'm pretty sure they've like cgi their faces to make them look even more horrific as they're falling down oh that for for sure, there's a lot of CGI in the scene. It's funny because, you know, right at the beginning, that shot of, of Mitchell and Bond falling down, I said that actually looked all right. And I still do think that looks okay, but that was definitely CGI bodies as well. Um, but I think that's maybe because that was just one shot and it was it was one and done. But it's funny because in Casino Royale, I was saying I, I quite liked all the, the CGI stuff at the end with the building collapsing, but that's because it's a building. And a building, there's no such thing as an uncanny valley, which is what you get here because uh, yeah you're, you're totally right there is some definite cgi faces on there and cgi skin flapping which is, i don't want to see that it is realistic but still uh and it just looks bad it just looks bad as they're falling down um against like the rock in the background it looks terrible the way that the, the parachute comes out at the very last second they would be dead from that come on now yeah. um it it just didn't work they tried it's quite a bold thing to do for well, I guess this is 2008. I don't know. Maybe it was there, the tech, but the CGI just wasn't strong enough for this sort of scene. No, and I was surprised at how bad the CGI was in this film. Like, that's really surprising, especially because they made such an effort to not have it in the last one and was like, see, we're not dying of a day anymore. Look at all this non-CGI practical effect. And now this one, obviously, it doesn't go to die another day levels, but they were just like, yeah, just CGI's face or something. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it's just... It's weird that they went back to it. Yeah, it was. I think this whole scene is just kind of strange. Um, like I said, I think it was just a bit unnecessary, but I guess they had to get to this point in the uh, sinkhole. So there you go. Yeah, I don't disagree. I don't really hate this scene, but it is just a such a throwaway scene. Not very interesting. Some bad CGI. So there we go. So after they've landed... We uh, cut back to M and Tanner, who are walking through this uh, this hall, and M's heading to a meeting with the foreign minister. And as she's getting there, Tanner's just giving a, another little outline of of the Bolivian report um, about Mathis, and that Bond ended up shooting the Bolivian police on a, a routine inspection because uh, 
She needs. She can't go in unarmed. She says she needs something as she goes in, and she goes into the office. And this is like yeah. So this is like a West, like a Parliament office or Westminster office or somewhere in London anyway. A bit more realistic to what we've seen in M before, but it's not M. Uh, and it's a man at his desk looking down, making a note. And as she comes in, he says, "What's today's excuse? That Bond is legally blind." <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was quite good. Yeah, I thought that given, was funny. Giving some sass, giving some sass at Bond. But yeah, he's being very dismissive, dismissive to her and um, and what you know Bond's actions and and what he's been getting up to, because he says to her that the British government has been talking to their cousins, being the uh, the US, and now their interests align with Greens. So the UK government is now getting on board with whatever this plan Green is doing as well, um, to do with oil. So M obviously pushes back on that and starts talking about how can we align with someone that's involved in this this organization, this mystery organization that we don't know much about. And he says, exactly. We don't know. We can't just make can't make plans based on hyperbole and innuendo or something, he says. But uh, M is very innuendo. <laughs> yeah, innuendo I thought was such a strange word to use there. Like what are in these reports? I don't know. <laughs> Um, but yeah, M being the M that we know ever since Goldeneye, where she is very much the data person. She, the, the, uh, what does he say? Queen of numbers. No. Uh, oh, if you mean Tanner and Goldeneye, I think, yeah, I think it is the evil queen of numbers. Evil queen of numbers. That's it. Yeah. Um, she wants more time to gather more, more evidence before making such a decision on this. And this is where the minister comes back and says, well, even if, even if Green was a villain, uh, if he was a bad on the bad side, the the UK government still need him. They still need the oil. Basically, other countries are uh, not letting them in. So sometimes that just has to be the way things are. You have to deal with with good and bad. And then he says that perhaps he kind of walks up to a window as he says that, and then he turns around and says, perhaps that Bond has been turned. So all of the actions that Bond's been up to, killing that guy Haynes's guy, maybe it's because he is also a member of this organization and because of that he orders them to call him in like demands her to call him in else the americans will put him down he says hmm it's nice to see M talking to this guy who i don't know if you said it was the foreign minister right yeah yeah nice to see their interaction but this is when like the quantum stuff and the organization stuff is getting more confused because We've now gone from, who can we trust? We don't know who to trust. They're in the shadows. We need to get to the shadows. What? And stuff like that. To now just like Green's operating completely in the open and is manipulating the Americans and the British Parliament to do what he wants. And that feels strange because they're all like, yeah, he's probably not a good person. (laughs) They all know that, but they don't care. Which in itself is an interesting idea, but it's like, then what's the point of this stupid secret organization? You, it sounds like you don't really need it. Like I, like I felt like these ideas almost kind of contradict each other, and they're trying to make a point about oh who's right and who's wrong, and because a lot of this dialogue he says is the same that um, the Beam says. Like he says this same thing to like Felix earlier on mm. in the film. So there's, I think it's meant to be parallels there. But again, this is such a confused idea with everything else. Like, either just focus on the shady organization or focus on, like, the corruption of Western powers. Having them 
be both and especially with everything else going on in this film just lessens the impact and i felt nothing in terms of this whole all working with the villains but we know they're the villains oh that's interesting isn't it it's like well yeah maybe in a different film where there was more time to focus on it but this is just one small part of this very complicated film uh i'm i'm a little bit conflicted on this because yeah it is too much it is too much for this and i think for the film to then add this other element of well maybe let's 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 look inward shall we to to the real life and actually the governments do do this sort of thing that's fine well no it's not fine in this film there's already too much stuff going on what i do like that it does is that it kind of puts em in that situation where she is now also kind of on her own in a way well it's not on her own but she is now having to kind of do what bond does and work a little bit I mean, this is how I read the later scenes anyway, is that she is setting up Bond to then carry on. So she is she is fighting her own battle now against her bosses. So I like that. But I I mean, how many times have we said, I think there is just too many elements in this film that do compete with each other. And I think uh, this in itself would be a really cool idea for like, a, this could be a whole other film about hmm. like what happens when MI6 is sort of at risk. But wow, it's that's just, Spectre. yeah. I tried to block that. Um, But yeah, no, it's true. So I think it just didn't really have any place here. Yeah, with you, I would have liked that as well. Um, M, the idea of M kind of go. We we know M's a bit like we'll stand her ground with this stuff and fight, but uh, I think Skyfall does this as well about the department. So we do revisit this idea, which is good. But here is just such a small piece of this that it's like, that's kind of cool. Yeah, I could see that. All right, moving on, I suppose. Let's go to a cave. Ah, oh, you've actually made me really sad now. Because as I was saying that, <laughs> <laughs> as I was saying that, and like, yeah, that does sound like a cool idea. You're right. That is just that is Spectre. That is exactly what happens in Spectre. Yeah. Oh man! <laughs> but there is a little bit of M and like under Fred Skyfall as well. So, ah, oh. and that stuff's pretty good. <clears throat> yeah. Anyway, uh, after the scene with the foreign minister, we're back in the sinkhole in Bolivia. Bond. Uh, well, Camille's sitting there shivering and, and Bond says that he's found a way out because they're just in this middle, like they're in this huge cave obviously now and uh, trapped, or at least they thought so. So yeah, Bond's found a way out, sees uh, Camille's cold, gives gives her his jacket and asks um, what is it that Green has that she wants? What is what is her element in this plot? Why is she involved? And that's when we learn a little bit more about what was briefly mentioned at the beginning with Medrano and how... Camille's father was uh, was killed by him because he was in the army, and after that, her mother's and sister, her mother and sister, was raped and killed in front of her when she was young by Medrano, and then he set the house on fire that she was in. Like very nasty guy. Um, so she had been waiting, waiting years and years for that opportunity on the boat to get revenge and kill him. To which Bond apologizes for for getting in the way of that. Um, and that they're both using green to get to someone. So she kind of replies saying, well, have you lost someone then? Like, what are you, what's your involvement in this? Um, to which he says, yes. I lost Mitchell. Then he breaks down. <laughs> <laughs> Eight years. The M stands for Mitchell. <laughs> he was a mother to me. He always had my interests at heart. He would like to think it's a mother. <laughs> But no, that he hasn't caught them yet. Uh, and she says, "Well, t- when tell me when you do. I'd like to know how it feels." 
So this is kind of what Tom was mentioned earlier about. There's this parallel storyline going on here. Two characters both out for revenge. I guess it's the film is trying to point uh, a spotlight on what what it takes to get into that and also what you get out of it as well. Uh, well, the title of the film is a pretty big one on that to begin with. But um, yeah, they head to the way out that Bond saw and Bond spots that he looks, he picks up a bit of rock and from like the, I guess the way it was cracked or whatever can tell that it, there was dynamite used here or something or just the fact there was a big rubble pile there. Um, there have been dynamite explosions to divert water because this looked like it was originally a riverbed and what do you know they look over and there's a giant reservoir of water underground so um <laughs> i always think it's a bit strange how bond does that it's like this this looks like a riverbed it's a little bit out out there but i guess they just needed to get this this element in that um green isn't actually after oil at all uh it's it's the water he's trying to artificially create a drought through underground uh, water systems and therefore have a monopoly in uh, in Bolivia. So weird. What a weird reveal. It wasn't oil, it was water. So, okay, that literally changes nothing. <laughs> mm. it, it doesn't change anything about this entire film. It's not like, haha, you thought it was oil, but water's the... It's like, what? <laughs> we, we were barely talking about oil before in this film. Like, nobody really cared about oil apart from the Americans. It's just like, oh, well, I guess we said it We said it before, said it again. I guess kind of an interesting idea, but this just feels like it's meant to be interesting that it's actually the water. I just like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Relative to this film, that literally doesn't matter. It could have been oil and nothing changes about the film at all. Could have been, it could have been Diamonds. Yeah, could have it, been anything. it could have been a massive reservoir of Smarties. So, oh no, mm. he's already after the Smarties. And it would have been the same <laughs> film. A massive reservoir of beluga caviar. And there's Zukowski. <laughs> what's, that, what's that hand sticking out of the caviar? <laughs> Is there a cane there? Is that a cane? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's those gold teeth, is that? <laughs> oh, no. <Ugh. laughs> uh, but right on cue after saying that about all the water droughts and stuff, we do see these shots of a uh, very, very kind of poor Bolivian village. Uh, all, all these people around, all these villages around a, a water pump or like a well and the taps run dry. There's just these few drops coming from it and they're all there with their buckets and it's really hammering home. No, Yep. They are running out of water. It's true. Look, look at how look at everyone looking sad, and someone goes to look in. It's nice, really empty. That's that. And these are the people that Bond eventually, Bond and Camille eventually walk past. They they get out and they are walking through the desert. You get these shots of them, which I think are quite cool visuals in itself. Just Bond and, and Camille walking, and he's still in his suit, obviously. But yeah, it's just them walking out and walking past these people, and eventually catching a bus. Just a simple bus with the rest of these locals back to the hotel. No no fancy car, nothing like that. We're just on a bus. Yeah, it's surprising how good this scene is put together. Like, it's nonsense. Like, I don't know why we're seeing this. I guess they really want to hammer home about the drought that's happening in Bolivia. But this only really works when we're talking about the angle of all corruption screws over the little man, which... It's not a bad thing to make a film about, but it's not a Bond idea. Not a Bond film, yeah. At all. 
Um, so it's really awkward. And also, this is when it really stood out where um, I felt a bit weird saying this because or thinking this because Camille, I was all like, what's going on with her skin tone? Like that, she looks odd. But I felt weird thinking that. But I then looked it up afterwards. So the whole point is that she's Bolivian. But this actress is from Ukraine. Oh. So she's not... Oh, no. Yeah. So she's she's completely white. Obviously, Ukraine, you know, it's that part of the world. It's Europe. So she's just white. But they cast her as a South American Bolivian woman. And I don't know if she just got a tan or if she just got a load of makeup. But yeah, to me, it looked a little bit off. And I was annoyed to see I was correct. Oh, I didn't catch that at all. But yeah, that's... That's interesting. And this is when it kind of stands out because the people they get to be the Bolivians who are like low on water are just like so exaggerated, like older people whose faces just look really weird. Yeah. Like they're they're really meant to be like peasants almost. And then you've got this like gorgeous Ukrainian woman with a tan walking through with Daniel Craig and just like, oh, this this kind of feels a little bit key. So uh, not something I will linger on too much because that's a whole other thing. But again, I think the scene itself is surprisingly well put together for what it is. But this is all feels a little bit off and just shouldn't be in a Bond film at all. Mm. So yeah, Bond, uh, they're back at the hotel now, the Grand Hotel. And as they go in, uh, one of the workers there, receptionist, comes over and, and immediately gives Bond a note saying it was left for him by his wife uh, that morning. And Bond looks at the little bit of paper and it's just just says run. One word on it just says run in big letters. So with that, Bond asks Camille to wait outside, out of the way, and he goes up to his room. And you kind of wonder what that's all about. He walks through the doors and M's there. Of course she is. M and some bodyguards in the room all around it. And uh, yeah, she sees Bond, but she gets very quickly, she gets a phone call from Tanner. Because they've caught Camille, so they had they had people outside watching as well. They've caught Camille, who was outside, but uh, Bond just says to let her go. She's not really part of this, which they do. And then this is where obviously M is questioning what what on earth, what on earth is, is is Bond doing. Bond starts to talk about what he just found underground. There's no oil, um, but M says it's not about that. It's about trust. And how she's worried that he is just purely motivated by revenge and has inconsolable rage and that he doesn't care who he hurts. Um, one thing I want to quickly point out here with this introduction of M in this scene is I there's definitely an element of, well, M is dressed like in clean white and Bond is dressed in, in like that dirty tux. And I think uh, there's meant to be a sort of you know, there's a division here, especially of what happens later on. And I think uh, it kind of then made me realise that this whole hotel is very, very like white walls and everything. Maybe that's just how it is. But I, I feel like that was a bit of a conscious choice as well, because it, Bond stands out so much from it in his tux as well. Yeah, I think they were trying to do that. But to me, I don't think it would work because Bond looks like that in a lot of the films at some point. So that to me, that's not a weird look for Bond. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And he, yeah, he's a bit messy. Uh, so yeah, when she says that doesn't care who he hurts, uh, he looks over to the the bedroom door, the one that we saw earlier, uh, and kind of something clicks. He walks in, 
and inside on the bed laid down we see a body we see a corpse laid out and it's uh it's miss fields it's miss fields but the thing is is her body is completely covered head to toe in oil what's it what's it called something oil crude oil crude oil that's it yeah crude oil so yeah just completely blacked out and and uh lying on the bed uh and walks in and says that uh you know, they found they found oil in her lungs, so she was clearly drowned in it. But Bond is adamant that it's all just misdirection by Green. The fact it was oil, which M doesn't really seem to care about too much, is they're still wanting to tell off Bond. Uh, and this is right. So this is where I kind of have the biggest issue with Missfield. So M starts to sort of chastise Bond about Missfields and and Strawberry Fields and how she got involved in all this. She was just a simple office worker. All she was there to do was just to send Bond home and then starts to push those those buttons about what what sleeping with Bond ends up happening and how it like what ends up happening to all the women and and his charm because he says, Oh, how many is that now? And I just I think like if you're gonna do that if you're gonna do that plot point where you're trying to push Bond's guilt, which is never really gonna work anyway, especially in this film, but when I when I heard M say that, it didn't make me Feel, oh yeah that's true you know it just made me think why do they make Phil such a kind of silly almost ditzy character in a way then because then wh- why would they have sent her to do this job it d- doesn't it doesn't align to what em is saying there like oh this she was just caught in all of this well then why did they send her to bond what did they expect i, I got a bit angry at that i agree this this bit is terrible um but I think M might just be lying anyway. Oh, interesting. Based on what happens next, which I also hate, <laughs> but I don't think M actually does care, which also makes the whole like pointing the finger, the franchise pointing the finger at itself even worse because it's just like, does the franchise, like, oh, it just gets so confused. But I guess we need to get there. But I think M is lying when she's doing this. I think this is all an act. So, oh, is in lying about caring or lying that she was a simple office worker, blah, blah, blah? Well, I think, I don't think it's that M doesn't care, but I think M is aligned with Bond about everyone knew the risks, everyone has yes. a job to do. Yeah, It's sad, and we should honour the dead, but in terms of the idea of M putting all this like guilt on top of Bond, I think that's an act, which is so strange because the film is trying to do that, but M is, but isn't. It's mm, the, I, I really, really dislike this scene because it kind of shines a light on how all these ideas just don't mix in no. the slightest. Yeah, that is that is really true. This is where I was saying earlier on that M is a very complicated character in this film where you don't ever really know where she stands. At like one moment, she is meant to be trusted, or not trusting Bond, but you you feel like she deep down really knows in other moments she's not like that and like i overall it is always the way i mean i'll get onto it so uh with that she says to bond that he's now been removed from duty uh pending investigation and he's got to give up his weapons and leave with the bodyguards that are in the room with him so he does that and they all get into the lift together him and three other men and then the second the door closes literally the second it cuts to bond uh, taking out these three guys very quickly, very easily, um, and grabbing one of their guns. So with that, he... And I think at one point, like the door begins to open. He's like, oh, crap. 
close that, close, close, close. <laughs> and then it actually heads down to where he wants to go, uh, kicks one of the legs in and closes the door of that and walks around part of the hotel and then just immediately straight into M, who was also walking down. And this is where he briefly says about, uh, oh, in, in the report mentioned that Fields was, a, was, was brave, basically, and you know, don't miss that bit out. And M says, there's nowhere to go. What are you doing? There's a, there's a capture or kill order on you, which he says, now, who would have done that? And there he starts to escape over the balcony. Obviously, uh, people are coming in now to try and find him. He kind of climbs over and shimmies along to get out of the way. Uh, and this is where Tanner comes and finds M. Tanner's there and says, starts to talk about the CIA and, and how are they going to react to this, to which she doesn't care. M is her, uh, sorry, Bond is her agent and she trusts him. She trusts that he's onto something. And this is what I mean. So that was obviously, I feel like M just, M just got muddled up in all of these plot points, like you were saying, and which is a shame because I think previously she's been quite a consistent, strong character, but I, I don't really like a lot of what she does in this film. Eventually, you kind of know that she's she's had Bond's back and I guess that whole thing with the lift was basically her knowing what's going to happen and, and letting it happen. But yeah, it is. I can see why you're not a fan of this scene. Well, it's, yeah, it's just, oh, it just does not work at all. Because I, you know, it's if you take the individual ideas, it's all pretty good. The idea of M has to bring Bond in, but as you say, the idea of M working against people on her side, so trying to like kind of use Bond in this way, so faking the capture, knowing Bond would escape, and then getting that nice moment between the two and M saying, "I do trust Bond." That's nice. I think some of that doesn't really make sense because the events of this film only take place like a week or two after the last one where there was a big issue of trust and it was supposed to be like the first time Bond working with M and do they trust each other? And at the start of this film, M's like, I need to know I can trust you. And then literally nothing happens to prove that M can trust Bond. And she's like, trust that man. I'll die for that man. Even though like all he does is cause trouble (laughs) and just like all the reports are like, Bond's killing everyone. I'm not saying M should go against Bond, but this feels like, they've skipped a few steps in their relationship to make this work. So not a bad idea, but for a sequel film to Casino Royale, nonsense. Um, and then we go back to what M is saying to Bond in the hotel room, and she is touching upon all the themes of the film, but she like doesn't mean it because it's all an act. So it just confuses, like, is Bond actually blinded by inconsumable rage that you don't care who gets hurt? It's like, yeah, I guess, like, I think. And that idea has definitely been put throughout the film, but it doesn't come together. It's like she's pulling all these lines and just kind of showing that, oh, they don't go anywhere. (laughs) Yeah, just seeing what sticks. And she's like, when you can't tell your friends from your enemies, it's time to go. Cool line, and Judy Dench delivers it really well. But It's like, what are you on about? Bond literally said, I have no friends. (laughs) earlier <laughs> and at what point did bond not know his friends from his enemies was that mathis i thought he did know. like who what does that line have to do with anything like aren't you the one who can't tell your friends from your enemies why are you saying that to bond you're the one who messed up mitchell people <laughs> this is mitchell all over again 
So you're so right. Yeah, you it, are it's right. just really, really confused, and it's like exposing how this film doesn't work because all these ideas are meant to come to this point and pay off with Bond and M seeing each other, and everything just collapses in this really unsatisfying way. And oh, that's I haven't even gone to Fields being dead on the bed. Like, we just found out that the bloody film's not about... Like, it's about water, not oil. You should have drowned her. Like, why is she covered in oil if this film actually is all about water? That doesn't make any sense. And, uh, it's, uh. oh... What, why Why did they need the Goldfinger reference? I, I think don't somebody know. had the idea, oh, we're doing a film with oil in it. We should do Goldfinger. And it is a really striking, cool image. It's just so out of place. <laughs> like, Goldfinger, there was at least a point to it. And you at least had that moment where Bond was, like, seeing her on the bed. And there's, like... And it, it kind of demonstrates how crazy Goldfinger is because it's someone you don't really know. It shows his obsession with gold. It shows that he doesn't care about these people and will just kill this woman, even though there was a connection there. He shows his petty. It shows he's spiteful. It shows he's, like willing to punish Bond in this way. And then, you know, maybe Bond doesn't really reflect on that all that well, but he does see it and it does spend a little bit of time on it. And then it has a knock-on effect with the rest of the film, with her sister. Again, maybe it doesn't go anywhere, but there's like, it has a real purpose as well as being a really striking, cool, not cool, but really striking, powerful image. This is just like something to put on a poster because this just has nothing to do with anything. Like, the oil stuff doesn't really connect, in my opinion. Fields had no personality. The stuff about leaving the bodies in Bond's wake, we've already done, like, three times, and it's not landed. And it looks good, but they're so insecure about it that when they leave the room, like, Bond and M leave that hotel room, they fade back to the image and then fade out again. It's like, yeah, I Mm. saw it. (laughs) Just because you're showing it again doesn't mean it means anything. There's no impact there. It's a striking image, and I think the idea is cool, but they just, like, wrote it in so lazily when they're already trying to hammer in so much plot in the rest of the scene that I was just like, oh, that's such a waste. Such a waste. I can tell this is very... uh, Ah! Yeah. (laughs) I completely forgot there was that just that one little shot at the end of it, and it's like that is the shot where it's almost the same angle as well. Uh just so you could get that side by side, I guess. I That's know. all it is, yeah. Just to get it in there. And again, I don't think it's a bad idea, but don't just shove it in. There needs to be motivations and ideas about this. And oh, they just shoved it in. But I do think it's quite a cool idea. It's just in a better film, which is, um, I guess that's my review of it, really. Some cool ideas. Okay. In a better film, probably would like them quite a bit. <laughs> well, just... Uh... Pretend I just said everything Tom said because I also didn't really like it to be honest. Maybe not with as much, maybe not with as much vigor. I don't think I was that <laughs> that moved, but still, you are you are right with what you're saying. I... I didn't get that mad at the time, but now I have to think about it. I'm getting mad. Mm. I'm so blinded by rain. <laughs> I can't tell my friends were my enemies. <laughs> uh, so yeah, just to end off, Bond escapes the hotel. Um, and just as he gets outside, Camille pulls up uh, in a car and just tells him to get in. And uh, I don't even know if that's that what they say, maybe. And then they just drive off. Yeah, that's it. Okay. Uh, so we see Felix in an office with Beam. 
So they're nearby in the city and they're in this quite rundown building. Again, a lot of these are somewhat older buildings and Felix is drinking a bottle of water and Beam says like, oh, why are you drinking that? Kids pee in it? And he's like, you can't trust a damn thing around here. And I think Felix is probably looking mopey. I don't know. Beam is just trying to be cocky American stuff. But the phone goes off and Felix answers it and it's Bond on the other end. And Felix is like, how did you get this number? How do you know about this place? And he's like, I heard I heard it from a taxi driver. Everyone knows where the CIA is in this country or in this city. So Felix says, you should come for a visit. Come on down. But Bond says, maybe you should see more of the city. So we cut to a bar and we cut to people smoking and drinking in this bar at night. And Bond enters the bar, goes up to it, and there's Felix there and they meet up. Um, so they start talking. Felix says, I heard a rumor you've gone native. Um, and Bond is talking about the Americans, like carving all of this up, carving Bolivia up. And Bond asks Felix, are you really playing for the right side? And Felix then gives kind of a, a half-hearted excuse saying, oh, if it wasn't this guy in charge, there'll be another one. So not much we can do. And um, Bond says, oh, you'll play with anybody then, I guess. Um, and Felix says, yeah, including you, brother, as well. Um, so uh, Bond says, you're being played. Uh, Greed is going to suck this place dry. And Bond is surprised because he doesn't think Felix is so cynical to let that happen. And Bond ends off with saying, how long do I have? Felix says about 30 seconds. Um, but Felix at the end gives him some details saying, all green are, is finalizing the agreement with the, the general and the police chief out in the desert anytime soon. So Bond says, thank you, Felix. And Felix says something like, watch out. And at that moment, CIA, CIA guys storm the bar and start shooting at Bond. Bond ducks and runs off and everyone in the bar starts screaming it kind of like starts going into an action piece where Bond runs up some stairs and knocks down a soldier and then he leaps over a balcony and runs into a house and then it just like stops. Then there's a dog and yeah. that's it. And that's it. So <laughs> Felix, we go back to Felix. He downs his beer and finishes it. He meets up with Beam at the front and he's all like, what the hell happened? And Felix says, I only told him what we agreed. And that was it. And we see Bond walking away in a nearby street. All, all okay. So this this wasn't too bad. No, no, I like this. Nice to see Bond and Felix talking to each other and Bond running away from the CIA. That's a bit of fun. Very brief, very short. But yeah, these two, Bond and Felix, just have natural chemistry. So it's just a little bit more of that. Exactly. Yeah, just a few more quips back and forth. Also, like uh, when uh, at the end where James says, uh, where James, where Bond says, uh, how much time do I have left? And then he gives the information about the hotel. The line he ends with is, James, move your ass. (laughs) 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 But yeah, no, I I think any excuse to have more time together with Felix and Bond, it is really quite quick, but they still manage to fit in a few little slide digs at each other and everything. So it's uh, quite an efficient scene. I think it's, it does what it needs to, doesn't, doesn't ruin Felix, which is the most I can ask for. So it's all good for me. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. So we fade to the desert and there's a lot of shots of showing how hot it is. I think we see like a Komodo dragon on a rock or some sort of lizard. Um, and we see this like odd looking building, which I believe is meant to be a hotel, but it's like a load of blocks, like a load of squares with a load of glass on the front. And they're like, yeah, just like all these like squares all the way along. And we see two army officers inside the building who are the general, 
the one who's the evil dictator, and the colonel, who was the corrupt head of police for Bolivia. So we see a woman come over and ask, can we get you a drink? I think the general says, I'll have a beer. The colonel says, I don't want anything. And nearby we see Bond behind a rock, and he's with Camille, who's assembling a pistol. I guess just practicing that, I suppose. And Bond sees some cars arrive, and he then turns to Camille and says, have you ever killed someone before? And he talks about how... I think she says no. She doesn't say anything, actually, does she? No, I don't think so. Okay, yeah, she just doesn't respond. Um, So Bond then says, oh, the training will tell you that once the adrenaline kicks in, you should compensate for that. And Bond says, but you won't believe the training because this is personal for you. So what he says is, take a deep breath. You only need one shot. Just make it count. Which I think comes back, but... Uh, yeah kind of Mm. yeah uh so then we see the cars that were showing up the jeeps they go into like an underground entrance underneath this hotel um so we see some really weird shots here where green gets out of the car eating an apple as you do (laughs) just having a little munch on the apple but then we see like a load of shots i think are meant to be tense where it's a ton of walking just so much walking where these two parties, like one's upstairs, one's all the way downstairs. So we have to see them like meet up in the middle. But it's just so awkward that we're just meant to have these tension of like, oh, what's going to happen? It's like, well, they're going to meet up and have a chat. <laughs> That's what's <laughs> going to happen. Or are they? Maybe he's going to choke on the apple. Oh, what's going on with the apple? Yeah. Well, you uh, know what they say. An apple a day keeps the Dr. No away. <laughs> oh my God. I didn't, I didn't know where you were going with that. <laughs> I didn't until about 10 seconds prior. No, it's all, prior. it came together, yeah. It really did. Flawless. <laughs> uh, so they meet up in a room um, and they smile and nod at each other and Green goes and gets them a briefcase full of money or one of his goons does, probably Elvis, um, and gives it to the colonel. And then the colonel says, the corruption in this government can no longer be tolerated and then calls the general El Presidente. So he's going to go off and overthrow the government. And the general says, well, where's mine? And Green says, you need to sign over the land. Gives him a piece of paper um, that he sends. And I think the woman with the beer then comes over to give him the drink. And he says, I'll take it in my room. Like, sends her away. Um, And the general signs the paper. And Green says, here's a new paper. And Green says that you need to sign this. And this says that the organization will owe, like, or my organization currently owns 60% of the water supply in Bolivia. So you will sign this to say that we will be your only utility provider. And he says, no, that's double what we pay already, which good for the general for knowing those things, for knowing what they pay for water. You know, he's got some bad sides, but he's, don't praise this man. <laughs> you know, he keeps it, he knows straight away that's too much for water. He's, you know, he's I'd vote for him. <laughs> I could have a beer with him. I could, I'll vote oh, for him. Oh, don't, no, you don't want a beer with this guy. <laughs> no. No, no, no. Um, so Green says, okay, that makes sense. Don't sign it then. Uh, but he then gives a threat about if you don't sign it, my organization works with everyone. So. Uh, if you don't sign it, you'll wake up with your balls in your mouth and your replacement standing over you. So he then signs it. So he then we see that Cam- uh, Camille is running along the top of this hotel because it's like built into the sand almost. So you can like just run up a hill and you're just like on top of it. So he's walking there and 
yeah green then says like oh if you don't believe me shoot me and take the money but he does just sign it so camille then drops down so she's kind of entered the hotel and the general is given his money and then he leaves yeah i guess it was one last chance for these characters to have something but i feel like it's kind of too far gone now and the fact that this scene is purely just like oh the water supply i'm just like like i know that's what they're doing but i'm just like that's so lame that that's where this went to yeah, having this sort of very heavy point so late, I d- by this point, I don't care. <laughs> you yeah. know what's going to happen. They're here. They're at what is the, the final base sort of thing. I, yeah, just get it over and done with, which I guess they do. It is quite quick, I suppose. But I, you don't really get anything more from, from Green here. So it's kind of the same same as we saw before. Still kind of lame and slimy and not very interesting. He tries to eat an apple and make that interesting. And it's interesting. Yeah. Maybe for the wrong <laughs> He is reasons. eating an apple. He certainly is. I wish he was drinking like a big glass of water or something, just to really hammer that. Whoa. Home. Don't go crazy now. Yeah, maybe that would have been too much, yeah. Maybe Blofeld could do that, but not Green. No. God. So, yeah, we, we see um, Camille. She now has made her way into this hotel as the uh, the general, or I guess the president now, is um, making his way to his room and she's going to get seen. So she sort of hides uh, against the doorway because she is quite close by to him. Uh, and yeah, this, the president, I'm going to call him Madrano still. Madrano goes in his room and yeah, the waitress was sent there with his drink and he starts to rape her, which is not very nice to see, obviously. And with that, at the same time, so we're going to get... The whole kind of ending to this is is Bond and Camille each doing their own thing to, to finish their storyline. So now we cut back to Bond, who um, is, well, we see the colonel heading out from the underground car park um, that they came in through. And as he comes out in the car, Bond just drops down from, from above them onto the windshield and shoots the colonel, who was not the driver, but next to him, just straight up shoots him. And this is where my line was. This is the line. Because this is as he does that, Bond shouts, you and I had a mutual friend. Oh, and, yeah. And it's sort of like the line itself is almost cut off by the sound of the bullet. It it just, it sounded really bad. And also, like, you, I don't, would you be able to hear what Bond is saying in that moment? I don't know. I just thought it was kind of, it was meant to be a cool, well, maybe not cool, but it was just meant to be a moment and it, it really wasn't. It didn't land at all for me. No, um, especially for a film that's meant to be about revenge. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Just more um, bad dubbing of audio, just throwing lines of Bond over the top. I've never seen anything like it. No, I did because I went back and I watched. I was like, did it, does his mouth even move when he jumps on top? Does Bond's mouth even move? I think it does, to be fair. But maybe it's a different line they had and they rewrote it, I'm assuming. Uh, anyway, uh, with that, so the colonel's dead. And the driver of that car then starts to reverse uh, out of the way of Bond and reverses into sort of a doorway at the back of the wall. And I don't know, did you mention when they were saying about the, the fuel cells, the two general, the two guys? No, and I missed this completely because I think you're about to explain why something explodes because I yeah. have no idea where this explosion comes from. Yes, it's <laughs> it's kind of forced in there. But when the two are sitting on the balcony previously, Madrano and the Colonel, and there's this noise that comes from behind them, like something is like powering up almost. And 
I think the colonel says, oh, that's just the fuel, tails, fuel cells. It's what the hotel runs on. And then Majorana says, oh, that that sounds highly unstable. <laughs> thanks, thanks, film. Now we know. Because, yeah, then this car reverses into presumably some of those fuel cells and it just explodes massively straight away, like huge fire, which starts to engulf the whole place very, very quickly. And... Bond is, is in this little car park area. He starts shooting and taking out all the guards in there. And as I say, this whole place is starting to blow up. I guess all the fuel cells are you know, linking together and blowing up. But Bond makes his way up some stairs. I think he's taking out some more people as well. And we cut back to Camille, who is still outside Madrano's room. And she shoots the guards outside and deals with them. And that gets the attention of Madrano inside. Then we see Green running. Obviously, he's heard the explosions and everything, so he's now running with Haircut Man. Uh, and he does this strange thing where he, like, poses him ready with the gun, ready to shoot anyone, I guess, that might be chasing him, <laughs> which it's just really awkward. Like, yeah, he literally, like, moves his arm with the with the gun ready. And this poor guy in his neck brace, neck brace doesn't really know what's happening. But before he can actually do anything one of the fuel cells, we get a shot of it, and it's like one of those fuel cells explodes and just completely, this wall of fire just engulfs uh, Haircut Man entirely. This poor guy had no chance. And along with that, we also get this strange slow-mo shot of Green running away from that explosion and all this glass shattering next to him. I don't think there was anything like that in the film previously. It's just this one moment. No, and also the rest of the editing is very quick. So it's like super quick action. Like when Bond is fighting, everyone's super, super quick. And then you just get these like slow-mo shots of Green running away from explosion, like cowering as well. It's Yeah. And I'm assuming there's some CGI used in it because it looks really off. Like It, it looks off, look doesn't right. it? Yeah. Yeah. Strange choice to put it right there at the end. I don't quite get that. But yeah, so Green is running away from all that. Camille starts to enter uh, Madrano's room. But uh, because there are some gaps, well, actually, the, the woman walks out. She runs away. That was in there. And there are actually some gaps in the wall. So it explains why she goes around and immediately gets caught by uh, Majorano straight away. Bond starts to chase after Green. Bond is actually on the roof now. I guess he carried on going upstairs. So he's shooting at Green through a uh, glass ceiling down below and then eventually just jumps down uh, through the broken glass. And rolls down, except when he gets up, Green is actually behind him and gives him a whack with a crowbar or something like that. And then smashes and gets an axe off the wall. And then you get a bit of a, a combat between him and Bond where Green is just like swinging manically with this axe, like totally kind of out of control with it, just screaming and, and slashing at Bond. Like, yeah, clearly, you know, out of his element here, to be honest. Um, Camille... Is still with Madrano and he's kind of got her caught, but she she bites him. I think he licks her actually, and then uh she bites him to get herself off of him. Well, she... he says something really creepy. He says, uh, you have the same look of fear in your eyes as your mother did. Oh, like, oh. Mm. ew, no. Yeah. So yeah, once she gets free from him, he eventually just like pushes her into uh, a glass table, smashes her into that, and uh I'm cutting back and forth between these because that's exactly how it happens. So Green is still there fighting Bond. And at one point, Bond is like 
hanging off of one of the walkways that he's on, it collapses because of all the explosions. So he's hanging off that, but there's still explosions and fire everywhere, obviously. From the broken table on the ground, broken glass table, Camille grabs a shard of the glass from it, stabs Madrano in the leg, and in that she can also stab him in the back as well. <laughs> I wrote Nond here. I think I mean Bond. Bond gets back oh. up. <laughs> gets snack up. Hang on a moment. Uh, Bond gets back up and carries on fighting Green, and he's still got the axe. He's swinging with the axe. He swings downwards, misses Bond, and ends up slicing straight into his foot, and you get this really obvious shot of the axe going straight into the front of his foot. It's like one of those things that goes like, ooh, ooh. It's, yeah, kind of nasty. I thought but, Bond um, put the axe in his foot. Did Green do that to himself? He did it to himself. He's that bad. Because oh. <laughs> he does like one big swing at Bond, and Bond obviously dodges it, so it just carries on going down to his foot. What a loser. <laughs> and uh, because of that, he like loses his balance and starts to fall off the um, the balcony that they're on, the walkway, elevated walkway. But Bond does grab him just before he falls and, and saves him. Camille kicks Madrano. I think, yeah, I have to put kick. So it does something to get free from him. And now she uh, is close to her gun, which she had before, and says to him, this time you will burn. And we don't actually see her shoot him. We hear the gunshot off screen, back with Bond and Green, but presumably there's that moment where she's like holding her breath, doing what what Bond advised her to do. You do see her kind of pause for a moment. So yeah, there isn't really any payoff to that, I suppose. It's just, I guess, a bit of training Bond gives to her, because it's personal, as he says. And yeah, when Bond hears that, he recognises where she is. So he pulls up Green. Uh, so he saves him, doesn't decide to let him go. You know, Bond does learn somewhat um, and lets him crawl away for a bit because he has to go and save Camille. So he goes in and she's now kind of engulfed in all these flames. Like it's just completely overtaken the room and it's crumbling. And she is, I guess, kind of going back to when she was a child and her house was on fire. She is in a fetal position against the wall. Um, Bond breaks in, finds her and, and covers her and sort of shields her for a bit as he looks for a way out. I can't remember what she says here. She says something to him. I don't suppose you wrote it down, did you? Uh, she's saying, like, not this way, not this way. And I think she, she then does start saying about taking a deep breath and making it count. Oh, okay, right. Yeah, because Bond is looking around for what to do. And he, I think, like, a panel from the wall has fallen off and he can see another one of those fuel cells, those, those very handy fuel cells that like to explode very easily. So he shoots that, which causes a big blast a big hole in the wall for them to get out. And yeah, that's that's kind of those two with their respective battles going on at the same time. It's all very quick and intense. But I didn't hate it. I didn't hate it. I'll say that. I didn't hate it either. It's one where if I think about it too much, I probably would get to that point. Um, I, I guess the first thing I want to mention is that, oh my God, there is so much fire in this scene. Like... Yes, I'm assuming CGI because there is just a comical amount of fire in all of this and that does somewhat lessen the this like so you've got the general trying to like assault uh Camille while there's fire everywhere and you're just like that's what <laughs> that's crazy <laughs> and then when Bond is fighting Green there's just fire everywhere like 
they went too far with it. I think they needed to tone that back a little bit. Like, I know this is a Bond film and there's explosions and stuff, and I can overlook the base exploding too, very easily, but it's just like, it's mostly intact. There's just an absurd amount of fire everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is true. Uh, I didn't mind, I think, yeah, maybe tone down the fire a bit. I, I actually, I did like the setting though. I thought this, this hotel was kind of uh, quite visually distinct. Well, maybe not that distinct, but I don't know. I, I felt like on the on the walkways, it was quite good having Green and Bond fight. And I did like where they keep going back and forth. I and mean, it's hard to, hard to describe it, but I did like it constantly going back and forth between what they're doing um, just to sort of push that parallel idea of a revenge plot, even though it's not Green that he's really going against. But yeah, like it, I think it worked on that level. Maybe a smidge too much fire, though. You're right. I think they went a bit heavy with the CG yeah. there. So I, I like them going back and forth as well. I think I will say, without going into it too much, this whole like sexual assault angle they're going with with the general character is just too far and just quite inappropriate, especially because it's like one small part of this entire film as well. And like it's it's pretty horrible, actually. And it doesn't really tie that much into anything else. It's just somebody who is actually like assaulting women. And it's just not, this film just shouldn't be touching upon that. This is not the film to have that stuff in there. And actually kind of, it just goes too far with that. Um, So I, I like that you have this character who has this real reason to have revenge so I guess somewhat like hinting at it and describing it before, but now we get to it and he's like assaulting one woman and then tries to assault her as well. It's like, you just, this film should not be doing that. Like that's just too far. Um, and it just makes a lot of this stuff kind of uncomfortable because what is ultimately a city bond explosion fest has this like really sinister, nasty layer to it. And I think they, that it's such a small part of the film as well that it just makes it seem even more nasty. It's like they should have, they should have toned that stuff down. It's just not appropriate for this type of film, in my opinion. I think they made him evil enough with what we knew before. Yeah. I suppose, like, killing her mother and sister and setting her house alight. And especially because we do see the scars that she got from that throughout the film. So, yeah, that was probably enough to warrant him being a... Uh, a target of revenge yeah yeah like you could have a plot like this in a film i'm not saying you can't but not this film um but yeah and then the green stuff like he is so pathetic it's like i part of me kind of wants to get behind a pathetic villain like this it's just ah maybe they need to make him more pathetic i don't know (laughs) but everything that happens in this scene (laughs) is not green attacking bond like every time bond in a bad situation it's because of just random things happening like oh the the like part of the floor collapsed so bond falls down nothing to do with green but it's almost like okay we know green's pathetic and wouldn't win on a one-on-one fight but we're going to do a one-on-one fight anyway and we're going to try to be self-aware enough to make it that we're going to put in these elements so it makes more sense but it almost like shines a light on it like i would have almost preferred if green did put up more of a fight and was a little bit better i like it wouldn't have made much sense but I think this trying to design a whole fight around Green just getting lucky and then just like screwing himself over just makes it feel a little pointless. Like maybe just don't do the fight then uh, if you're going to do it this way. 
Yeah, I was just thinking that. Like, how else could they? How else could they have had these two? Well, how how else could they have got rid of Green? Basically, maybe they didn't. Maybe they didn't need to have a hand to hand combat scene together. Maybe, um, maybe just the idea of of Green being, you know, such a weasel is enough for him to eventually give in and and tell Bond what he wants. I don't know. I think the reason they did it obviously is that they wanted that parallel shot for both of them. And I don't, I don't mind it as much. I think he like the the, the manic sc- screaming that he does and everything kind of says enough to me that he is very much out of control of this situation. But you're right. Like they, <laughs> it is like oh well, this bit's got to collapse now for Bond to be in any sort of danger, which you're not going to buy anyway. But that's what they have to do in this situation, yeah. Yeah, but we've had plenty of Bond films where they find a twist on it. Like Eddie Carver, they didn't have a fist fight. Bond just gave him a cool death. And like Blofeld, the original one, there was no fight. Goldfinger, there wasn't a fight. Like, you don't have to do a fight. Or not a one-on-one fight anyway. Just create some sort of notable, interesting moments and you're good. Um, so there's definitely been a template or ways of doing this without doing that. Um, so it's weird that they try to do it while also acknowledging that it's like a bad idea. It's like maybe come up with something different then. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So outside of the hotel, Bond and Camille uh, are now out and Bond spots Green in the distance. He's still trying to crawl away with his with his dodgy foot now. And he tells Camille to wait there. And then we fade to... The middle of another, well, a desert. We're already in a desert, but it's a, it's a more deserty desert. <laughs> and uh, yeah, very remote as there's a car driving through it. It's Bond. And Bond gets out. He goes to the boot, opens it, and chucks out Green. Green was there. And uh, as he's doing this, Green says, Well, uh, you, you said that you'd promise to let me live or uh, promise to let me go. Since I asked, answered all your questions, I told you everything you needed to know everything you wanted to know about quantum. And this is where I thought that this was the first time they said quantum. I guess I was completely wrong, but I thought that that was actually quite good that they left it right to the end. But I guess you did see the cue as well earlier. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, Bond says that, well, once your organization knows what's happened, they'll soon be after you anyway. Uh, so we're just going to leave you here. And he goes from the, the boot, he grabs this can of motor oil and throws it to Green and says, I bet you make it 20 miles before you consider drinking that. And that's it. Closes it up, gets back in the car, and just leaves him there standing in the desert. And that's that. That's the end of uh, that's the end of Green for the film. It's quite a nice moment. I, I do quite like it as a villain, Deb. No idea how it ties into the themes of the film and what's going on with Bond. Is this him showing mercy? Is this him not showing mercy? Has he learned his lesson? Has he not learned a lesson? I don't know, but... I don't care. <laughs> I think it's quite a, a good one for this character to... to uh, especially because, I guess, it's all about oil, although it's actually all about water, but I guess it's all about oil. And I guess there's meant to be parallels to uh, fields and the way fields die. So maybe this is revenge for that. I don't know. It's very confusing. But it's quite a nice moment of Bond driving away and Green being stuck in the desert with a can of oil. Yeah, they needed... They need a moment for this film where it just kind of spells out to the audience, look, Bond has changed. He kept this guy alive. It's not just another pile (laughs) of bodies. What a hero. He got the information. Yeah, Bond has grown everyone. He's learned his lesson. So yeah, uh, with that, 
Uh, we see Bond and Camille are in the car. They park outside a very remote-looking train station. And um, Camille says, thank you. And uh, wonders what she's going to do next uh, after that revenge. And this is the thing as well is like, do, does I guess the question is like, does she get what she wants out of it? Because earlier on she says about, oh, tell me how it feels. And I, I don't know whether they really highlight enough about like, because the impression I got with it that I thought I was meant to get from it is that revenge is obviously not worth it and, and you're you're never going to be um, satisfied with it. You know what I mean? It's always a chase of it rather than the actual outcome. But I, And I thought they were going to go a bit more into that here, but they don't really. Bond just says, well, you know, there's still all the, the problems with the water, so you'll need to go and sort out all the dams they made and get one of Green's men to help you. And in response... She says, uh, "She says, do you think they'll be able to sleep now? To which Bond replies, I don't think the dead care about vengeance. Which I thought was a bit of a strange line. Um, and then it kind of ends off with, with her saying, I wish I could set you free, but your prison is in there. As she touches his head. And as she gets close to him doing that, they have a quick kiss. And that's it. She leaves and, and walks off to the station. And, and Bond drives off and... That's Bond and the Bond girl done. Yeah, I am agree. No sleeping I, uh, together. Nothing. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't know what they're trying to say with this in terms of revenge. Like, because the general is shown to be such a piece of work that, yeah, it was a great thing she did. Like, this isn't supposed to be like, oh no, should have she really killed him? Is revenge the wrong way to go? It's like, no, no, she, she, she nailed it. She killed a really horrible person <laughs> who deserved it. And, was going to do horrible things and has she saved somebody like he was assaulting someone and she saved her what are you gonna say like oh maybe not about this revenge thing? He's like no 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 like that was the right thing to do so i think that gets a bit confused with this i you know they don't necessarily need to spell it out but you would assume as you said the lesson is like all oh, revenge will always leave you empty or you know there's no uh, comfort in revenge whatever those sayings are but and I feel mm. like that's what it's supposed to be saying for the next scene to make sense. But I don't think it says that. Like, she helped a lot of people and took down this corrupt government. And she's now trying to help fix things. But if she didn't do that, then she wouldn't be able to fix things. <laughs> like So, like, I think this film proves that revenge is a really good thing. Which feels like that's not supposed to be how it comes across because of what Bond's struggle is supposed to be. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking when I was watching this bit. And yeah, as you say, especially with the next scene where it is meant to cap off that that question. Oh, how many times I just think again, it's just a bit a bit muddled. And I think uh, I would have. I'm not saying that things need to be like completely crystal clear and dumbed down to a level for you know the average Joe to understand, uh, because this. This sort of idea is a complicated one. Revenge is a complicated thing and, and emotions like this. So I don't mind that it's not like, this is how it ends, this is how she feels, job done. But it's almost as if they didn't quite try to cap that off in a nice way. And I think the film kind of suffers with that going forward as well. So yeah, a shame. Well, this story in a vacuum is fine. It's just when you then try to tie to Bond stuff. like Because then you're just like, well, how does this tie to Bond stuff? And it needs to tie yeah. to it for this ending to make sense. But I would say well, it kind yeah. of doesn't because of the way this is portrayed. It's supposed to be, 
you know, for your eyes only, somebody did this right about revenge and going too far. That arguably didn't do it too great, if you ask me, but uh, for different reasons. But this one is just, oh, yeah, I just don't think it tells has any sort of message. And her story probably needs a stronger message so you can see it reflected on Bond. And Bond needs to be the complicated character, not her. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. Is that that's the that's the reason why they had this character and this parallel revenge plot is only to to uh, affect bonds, right? To play off of bonds. But what you what you would think you'd get from that is that it doesn't work. Revenge doesn't work because, and then all this stuff that Bond, sorry, yeah, reve- yeah, revenge doesn't work, and all the stuff that Bond has done really has been pointless. The pain will still be there. Blah 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 blah. But then you're right in that they make it a very feasible and very um, understandable revenge story. And she, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, like, as you say, you don't need to spell it out, but spell something out. (laughs) Please. Please. Yeah. Um, But yeah, and also I guess the elephant in the room is that they don't sleep together, which I think is a good idea. I guess there wasn't time, but yeah. No time. No No time, I'm afraid. Uh, they don't really highlight it too much. I guess there's a kiss which highlights it, but yeah, they don't sleep together. So something different. I think it's quite a nice approach, but a bit wasted, just like a lot of stuff in this film. Yeah, kind of makes them seem a bit more even, I suppose, in there, especially with the, the similar stories. So not a, not a bad idea to do that. Yeah, and that's probably why Green was talking about sleeping with her so much to make this hit a bit more. I I don't think that was worth it, but... I guess the villain is the one who slept with her, but the good guy didn't, even though Bond slept with somebody else and she got drowned in oil, but don't worry about that. Yeah. So, final scene. We fade to Kazan in Russia, and we see an apartment block at night, and it's snowing, and we see a man enter a flat with a woman, and Bond is waiting inside the flat, waiting in the dark. So the man turns on the light, and... Bond says to sit down. He then shouts to sit down, points a gun at them, and Bond stares at the man, and they kind of all stare at each other. And yeah, the the man and the woman are sitting on the sofa, and Bond says, "Ask the woman if you're Canadian intelligence, but you don't. I already know you are." And he then starts explaining how you're going to be forced to give up some sensitive information. So there's some implication that these two are a couple uh, before as they enter the flat. They're quite chummy. And Bond says, did you give you a necklace? And we see she is wearing a necklace. And Bond says, I have one just like it. And it's the necklace that Vesper was wearing before. And she says, a friend, or he says, a friend gave it to me. So Bond says, you need to leave now. And check in with your people at Canadian Intelligence and saying that they have a leak. Um, But I have an unfinished business here. So she leaves and... So this man, I don't know when it's confirmed, but this is Yusef, the one that betrayed Vesper and was Vesper's boyfriend. So you do see a picture of him, so I guess that's meant to be enough to kind of connect it to, but I can't remember if they say it at this point. But yeah, this is the person that betrayed Vesper. Um, so Bond kind of explains what that, that scheme is, but the woman leaves and it's just those two, and the guy then says, Yusef says, uh, please make it quick. And we fade to Bond coming out of the flats. And he goes up to M. Like two men go into the building after he leaves. And M asks Bond, is he still alive? Bond says, he is. M says, I'm surprised. And asked him, did you find what you were looking for? Of which Bond says, yes. 
and they both talk about having that they don't have any regrets about any of this and m says no i don't have regrets it would be unprofessional <laughs> which i really liked um, and m then says oh we found green dead in the desert he had two bullet holes in his head and he had motor oil in his stomach does that mean anything to you once i can't help you i don't know <laughs> No, I know what you no. Mean. <laughs> um, and Emma explains how they've been able to straighten things out with the Americans and Felix has taken Beam's job. So Beam was fired and Felix took his job. Um, and Bond ends off by saying, congratulations, you were right about Vesper. And then Bond starts walking off and M says, Bond, I need you back. And Bond replies saying, I never left. And as he walks away, he drops the necklace that Vesper gave him into the snow. And we see the final shot of the necklace in the snow and it fades to black which then takes us into the circles <laughs> oh yeah after that mm. somber moment the circles come across craig walks across he shoots and then like the gun barrel and the blood comes down and then that becomes the cue in the quantum of solace logo which looks terrible and the bond what is going on yeah the bond thing <laughs> plays the credits roll and we're done so I think this scene kind of doesn't really work all that well for the reasons we've already talked about, where it's like, for me, I don't understand why Bond made this decision not to kill the guy after everything that's happened. And I don't see how in any way he let Vesper go at this point, especially because we know he absolutely didn't <laughs> going yep. by the other films. So it's like, I quite like the way this scene looks. I quite like Emma Bond talking in the snow. I quite like how like quiet it is and a quiet moment to end a bond film on i think all those ideas are good but because everything up to this point falls so flat i just can't feel any of the emotions that the characters are meant to be feeling i was having a i'm gonna be honest i was struggling to keep up with where this fits in with vesper as well like this was obviously the previous film where we learned most of vesper and so when bond says you were right I had to take a moment, when he says that to M about Vespa, I had to take a moment to kind of work out exactly what he was saying that about. And I guess the idea being that Vespa was put in a situation out of her control anyway. Uh, and that she wasn't actually evil. But I just, the more I think about it, the more, the more I feel like how much would I have missed the previous 101 minutes of this film and this was just put on the end of Casino Royale. I don't know. <laughs> I I don't actually think the film does enough to warrant this being the end. Yeah. Really. Um, as you say, I like the little bits of it. I like it's quite stylishly done. And yeah, Emma and Bond talking to each other is good. But yeah, it really just adds to that baggage of Vespa. And I don't think it's ended in a satisfying manner and it had two films to do it and it, it still didn't do it and as you say we still we, that's not the last we see of her so i don't know i'm not i mean i'm not saying that's bad that she comes back but i'm saying that that means it's still unfinished which maybe that's just the point of it all but uh i don't know i just at the end of it i wanted to feel more satisfied and i wasn't yeah you could definitely pull a lot of stuff out of this scene and this film and say this is what's going on and this is really interesting I think ultimately for me, does the film correctly portray those ideas and make them satisfying and interesting and stuff to think about? No. Um, and that's no. that's the ultimate thing that is sad. But again, there's lots of ideas that are super interesting 
and that uh, there are definitely things you could talk about with Bond and Vesper and what he's thinking, his relationship with M and what they go through. Lots of interesting stuff you could go through, but I don't think there's much point. Well, not anymore for us anyway, because <laughs> uh, we're at the end. But at this point in the film, that's kind of what you should be thinking of or just satisfied with Bond's journey throughout this. And I just don't think any of those good ideas give us a satisfying conclusion. And this ending isn't particularly bad. It's just similar to the M scene. Now that the plot all has to come together in a way that pays off, it doesn't because they didn't set any of this up correctly and all of it just completely collapses and stuff just doesn't mean anything because of that. Yeah, exactly that. So that's Quantum of Solace. Uh, I don't want to moan about the circles. I do think it's weird that they're right at the end, but whatever at this point. Oh, did did I moan about the circles? I don't know. Did you? I can't remember, but I will say I think the gun barrel looked terrible. Yeah, it did, right? Like the actual gun barrel effect looked terrible. So they they've, they've, they did it right in the 90s. Just bring that back. Come on. Yeah, it just looked very cheap for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so that was Quantum of Solace. Um, as it is a odd number episode, I will be starting... You know that I've been screwed by these numbers, right? Like Have you? The even ones are so much better than the odd ones <laughs> over the last like few films. Oh, you're right. Whoops. Yeah, well, never mind. Uh, but yeah, so Quantum of Solace. So this is an interesting one because, as we've said multiple times, I think so many of these concepts are really interesting. They're just basically cramped into a film that did not have enough time to bring them together and also just didn't really connect them in a way that made sense and made it satisfying now despite all my complaining i actually i really didn't like the first third but from the opera scene onwards i actually had a decent time and a lot of the problems i have with the film after that point is more when you stop and think about it and try and break down these quite complex ideas they're trying to put into this bond film it kind of falls apart but i actually kind of did had a have a decent time and i think the thing that really hurts about this film is that there's Mark Foster does have some really interesting ideas about how to put together action scenes and put together a film. He just almost needed like a second person to like kick him when he was doing something that kind of didn't work. Like I love the idea that we saw in the opera scene and saw in some of the other scenes about this contrast between these different things going on and cutting between them and having this like loud audio like experience, like experiencing action scenes rather than really kind of like going through that and i think that's awesome and i think some of that directing can really tie well into a bond revenge story him going loose because this is meant to be him like leaving mi6 almost kind of like so we didn't even really talk about that because it's such a minor part of the film well it's not but it is but anyway uh but i think a lot of this stuff could have worked with his directing style and we could have got a really unique visceral bond film with a lot of style like you can see a lot of it but None of it comes together. Those opening scenes are horrendous. You just can't. <laughs> just so bad. I, My eyes. I hated them because I just couldn't connect with them because there's just no balance at all. Um, but I can kind of, once you get into the film, I can kind of see what he was going for. That opera scene is a really strong proof of concept about what it could have been. And I love how aggressive and weird the audio design is in this film. And that could have been something that ties into the themes of the film really well. But the themes of the films are a complete mess. And it means the film kind of falls apart a bit. But but even so, shut your brain off a bit. Go for the ride. I think the last two thirds of the film are decent enough, fun enough, 
that I had an okay time with it overall. And it was a film that I was thinking about after watching it, like lying in bed that night. I'm like just thinking about some of these ideas, thinking about some of the directions he did with this aggressive audio and jumping between quiet and loud, but sharing the, oh, that stuff's so cool. And the ideas here. So nowadays I used to dislike this film because it was a bad follow-up to Casino Royale. I think that's what I used to think. Nowadays, I don't really care about that, but I think it is still a very messy, confused film that just doesn't live up to the potential of the ideas and it's just very conflicted. So with that, now I've got to rank it. So I'm going to look at my list. I'm looking at the the bottom half here. I can safely say Die Another Day is a better film. I had more fun with that one. I think it, it pulled off what it wanted to be more. So I'm then looking at The World Is Not Enough and to me, the Quantum of Solace is a very similar film to that one where it's like big ambitious ideas, but they just didn't really bring it together or was able to pull them off. So to me, this and that one is very similar. But honestly, I probably got more annoyed and frustrated that The World is Not Enough. And also The World is Not Enough is like 20 minutes longer, maybe half an hour longer. So it just kind of dragged on. That one got me more wound up. Quantum of Solace, at least I had a decent time in the second half. Um, so then that brings me to The Living Daylights and Quantum of Solace. And this was really, really tough. Oh, I'm really not too sure where I think Quantum Solace is like a shorter, more dense film that's ambitious, but it kind of collapses under its own way. Where The Living Daylight is a bit of a long film that just kind of drags and doesn't have as many ideas and some of the stuff works, but it's it's never as bad as Quantum of Solace, but it's never really as good or has as, as ambitious as that film. But I think I am going to put Quantum Solace underneath The Living Daylights. Very close though very very close i guess it just depends what i'm in the mood for um so yeah so i'm going to put it underneath so that means living daylight is number 17 quantum of solace underneath at, at number 18 and then the world is not enough underneath that at number 19 very interesting mm. very interesting okay mm. i'm quite surprised did, so hang on is it above or below the world is not enough did you say it's above the world is not enough yeah Really? I thought you liked The World Enough quite well. I thought you'd have liked it more than that. That's interesting. I would have thought you would... Where's Tomorrow Never Dies on your list? Uh, 13th. Oh. Okay, interesting. Did you not know I had it that high? <laughs> well, I yeah, I thought... I really would have thought that that would have been lower. No? Mm. Never mind, that was just one I plucked out just because I kind of remembered your... as we were discussing it. All right then, so 18 for you. Yep. Okay. Um, right, I'll try and keep this relatively brief, but very conflicted on this film. I think I've said that for a lot of them, but this one, <laughs> I do mean it, I promise. Um, i got to say, like, off the bat, and not just because I've watched 21 other Bond films, I was very excited for this to be an hour and a half film. <laughs> um, just because I was quite curious. We've seen so many Bond films now that are two hours, ten two hours 20 the last one what what is it going to be like when it's so much shorter shorter than dr no as you said and there's lots of elements of film that i really like has come from that i like how quick it is from scene to scene it cuts off a lot of the fat there isn't as much fluff in there and it just keeps moving and i think that's why as i was watching it i wasn't really getting too bogged down in things um i was actually quite enjoying it apart from that horrendous opening i think i was adjust a adjusting and also the other scenes were getting better in terms of the editing 
and like you know the opera scene is is good and i think by the end of it i was actually i wasn't love i wasn't liking it but i definitely wasn't hating it as much as i thought i would and it's only really when you then take a step back and actually think about what it's saying or what it's trying to say as a sequel to casino royale as a very much a, a kind of character profile of bond and the story of revenge and I think we've said it enough in this podcast, but it just doesn't it doesn't do that well. Um, there is a part of me that wanted to finish watching it and to just be just be like told, you know, <laughs> basically for it to be spelled out to me and then for me to be able to get some satisfaction. But the film can't do that because the film doesn't really know what it's telling. So many competing ideas in such a short run time. You don't really get the fragments of what Bond is feeling enough to then warrant this whole overarching storyline of him and Vesper and betrayal and trust. It just all feels a little bit tacked on with with buzzwords here and there and lines by M, repeated lines by M. So what I'm basically saying is I, I love the length of it. What I really would have liked to have seen after after watching this, it kind of occurred to me, I'd love to have a like an actual standalone Bond film of this length. We've said so many times in this podcast about the ending just feeling dragging on and pacing issues. I would love if this didn't have all that baggage of Casino Royale and could have been an hour and 30 minute Bond film with that, maybe not all that editing, but a la that editing and that that speed of it. Because I think that would actually be really good. And I wouldn't be sitting there thinking too much about all the questions and, and the lack of answers for it. I probably would have really enjoyed it. So it's a shame. There's things I really there's things I did like about this film. I liked the peak of quantum in the Oscar scene. I liked Mathis coming back and I thought he got a good ending with his death scene. And yeah, I just think it's just too muddied for my liking and too ambitious for what it wanted to do in its runtime. So, looking at my list, this is actually where now I, I complained about having Goldfinger and things so low down because I'm like, why, why have I done that? Because now it's going to make it so difficult. No, actually, this makes it quite nice and easy because that is definitely like the benchmark that I'm using. And it is definitely not better than Goldfinger. So that's at 17. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, that's at 17. And next to that is Die Another Day <laughs> right next to it. Um, and I had a lot of issues with die another day towards the end i liked the beginning but it really trailed off so i think that is the most logical place for me to pull it so mine is also going at 18 but just sandwiched by completely different films <laughs> they're very different yeah yeah wow i'm not yeah i was hoping because i actually had quite a lot of fun with die another day and that's become like my enjoyment line on my list so i was kind of mm. hoping quantum would uh go below that but i for the I know what you're talking about with the pacing stuff and the length of the film, it shouldn't be such a huge factor. But I totally get why it is when you're comparing two of these, like Die Another Day to Quantum. Just yeah. Quantum being shorter is a huge boost. <laughs> yeah, but when you like, what are the chances of both being on eighteen? That's quite funny. Yeah, I think we did that ages ago with another film, but yeah, yeah. There you go. So definitely not at the... Well, will it be in the... No, it, well, I think it's just going to miss out on the bottom five for me, but um, still quite low down. Yeah, that's the thing with my one. I think mine will be bottom five. I think I just decided 
if the living daylight or quantum will be bottom five. Oh, actually, yeah. Mm. I don't. Oh, I might. I might actually regret saying that. I might. I might go back on my word there, but we'll see. Don't overthink it. Don't overthink it. Exactly. Nice. Because the film certainly didn't. Hi. <laughs> <Hey>. oh. <laughs> uh, yeah. So we will end on a one-minute silence for Mitchell. Oh, thank goodness. Yeah, okay. just show a little bit of respect, you know. We... And I hope every, all the listeners do this as well. I think they will, yeah. She she knew him for eight years, for goodness sake. A little bit of respect. Come on. All those ashtrays. Yeah. So, yeah, so that was Quantum of Solace, though. I guess it's it was nice to revisit. I think it did kind of end up hurting a bit, where it was just like, man, actually... Because initially, when I first was watching, I was like, I hate this. This sucks. Nice and easy. Shove it down low. But then, like, oh, man. Could have been something so amazing. It had all the foundation there to be really good, but just didn't didn't work. But I just want to take one of these Bond films, the ones that people say kind of sucks, and just give it a little, little boost and say, actually, old Tommy over here says it's not that bad. But I guess for me, that's Die Another Day. <laughs> oh that's the one i'll be defending ah that's not even that high up on your list i know but i like it it's a good film see i've got fioris only for that that's my weird one so even then i don't think that's that weird (laughs) yeah not as yeah i don't know i think moonraker might be yours (laughs) (laughs) just for how high it is you leave Drax out of this i don't know i'm not saying me all you listening you leave Drax out of this i know what you're thinking so that's it yeah. Any last thoughts before we go? I'm tr- I actually I'm trying to figure out the last time I watched this film and it's probably just been such a long time that I'm glad we finally got around to it even if it has been 22 films in. And yeah, it it could have gone either way, I think, and it just went the wrong way, which is a shame. But at least now I know. That's all that is the point of this ranking, so I'm happy. What you're going to do after this is go and get the Blu-ray and drop it in the snow and then walk away from walk away from the camera and the camera will fade off on the Quantum of Solace Blu-ray in the snow. Oh, screw that. I want my full box set. <laughs> Just throw it all in. <laughs> I'm not missing out on having one out there, no. <laughs> I'm surprised. <laughs> I never left. What, what do you mean? What are you saying that for, Joe? <laughs> what, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? <laughs> All right. Okay. Thank you very much for listening. You have been listening to episode 22 of the Bond Revisited podcast. The Bond Revisited podcast will return next week with Skyfall. <laughs>